Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June 16th, 2014, and this is episode 1368 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Monday, so it's time for a listener feedback show, but i got a hybrid show to you for you today. Basically, this could have been two shows. Um, you're going to have a full episode of me uh, answering your feedback. These are emails that you guys send to me about stories and questions and videos and audios and anything you want to send me, you just send it to me with the words for Jack in the subject line. So if it's a video, you put video for Jack. If it's an article, put article for Jack. If it's a question, put question for Jack. Doing that will get you into the queue where I go through and analyze all these emails for inclusion on shows. I get several hundred a day, can't get them all on the air, but I get a lot of them on the air. And, I, and a lot of them that you don't hear on the air directly do indirectly influence the show and, and things that I spread around. I put a lot of it on YouTube and Facebook when I can't get it onto the air because I only have so much time. But before we start that part today, after we've done with the housekeeping, I'll have Josiah Wallingford, who's my former intern and now my partner at Perma Ethos, and a report from the farm, what's actually going on. we got a lot of great stuff to tell you. Uh, I think Perma Ethos is bigger than most people realize in the impact that we're going to have and the things that are coming very, very soon. I know some of you guys aren't huge on Perma Ethos, so at the end of the housekeeping, before I introduce Joe... Uh, I'll give you the rough timestamp where you can jump ahead if, if you're not into the Perma Ethos thing and you just want to go uh, fast forward to the uh, parts of the show you do want to hear. Um, I know that the whole permaculture thing is not for everybody, but hey, if you're really concerned about modern survival, uh, it's something to look into. And I think you might be really excited to hear about some of the things that we're going to have coming on the farm. So it'll be up to you with that. Before I get into any of this stuff, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors they do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is J.M. Bullion. You know what I just got from J.M. Bullion? Uh, my USS Garispoa uh, shipwreck silver. I bought a dozen of them just to get up over 300 bucks, so I got the discount from the MSB. Um, but this is silver that was on a ship. The ship was heading for England. Uh, they had problems, and they couldn't go the long way. They had to go the short way. They were spotted by a Nazi plane, the position was radioed, and a German U-boat sunk the ship with tons of silver on it. Uh, a few years ago, U.S. Uh, Odyssey uh, is a sub-company sub from uh, Florida, was commissioned to get the, get the silver off the bottom of the ocean. Can you find the ship and get the silver? They did. And some of that silver was made of these awesome silver coins, and you can buy them now. So... It's not the silver as it looked when recovered, but it is the same silver. It's been melted and minted into these awesome historic coins. Check it out today. They have a lot of other great stuff. Jambullion.com. Next up today, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is my go-to source for all medicinal herbs and all tonifying herbs and everything herbal. If it's an herb and you can buy it in the United States, you can find it at Western Botanicals. If it's not growing in my backyard and I need it, I go there to get it. If I'm dealing with an issue in my life or my health, where I want to know more about something and I'm not sure and I, I'm looking for something, I call them and there's real people there that can really help you um, and will do what they can to help you make the right choices for your own life. And if you call them up and say, we have cancer, what do we do? They're going to say, um, go find an oncologist. Uh, this isn't your flim-flam herbal supplement world. This is real people that with have real knowledge that are looking to help you. You can check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. They do have a premium membership, they call it. It's 50 bucks a year, and you get 25% off everything that they sell. If you use a lot of herbals like we do, that membership pays for itself. Guess what? If you're a member, Support Brigade member, they give you that membership for free. 
for free. No cost to you at all. And all TSP members can get that membership. If you don't want MSB but you use a lot of herbals, that you can get that membership for half price just by being a TSP listener by clicking on the link uh, in their banner in the right-hand margin. So check them out. Western Botanicals, great sponsor. JM Bullion, great sponsor. Uh, and both do discounts for MSB. So consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get discounts on silver. You'll get discounts on herbal supplements. Uh, you'll get discounts on everything from gardening to guns and everything in between. For many of our sponsors and many other companies that aren't direct sponsors of the show, also do discounts for you. You get $150 worth of free ebooks. You'll get some content that's available nowhere else. Check it out today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, a paramedic, or a firefighter, uh, I would uh, like to thank you for your service by offering you a discount to the member support brigade. Just uh, email me before, not after you don't join. Put service discount in the subject line, and I will respond to you with a discount. On that note, before I continue, um, I got an email today that's a typical email that I'm really tired of answering and a typical question that I'm really tired of answering, and it's about my stance on law enforcement and then why I turn around and give law enforcement members a discount. Uh, I think if you're even asking that question, You're a narrow-minded individual who has lumped all law enforcement officers together with the bad law enforcement officers. I really do. I think that you are vilifying someone for their job versus their behavior, and I think that's just as messed up as vilifying someone for the color of their skin, their religion, or their sexual orientation. I think you are a narrow-minded SOB if you consider a cop a bad guy just because he's a cop. And if you want to say, well, they're contributing to the system, so are you. So are you. People that say that, I'm like, do you drive a car? Oh, okay, you pay gas taxes. You're contributing to that system. Do you go to school? Okay, you contribute to that system. I mean, do you have electricity? Yeah, you do. Off the grid? Oh, okay, yeah, you're buying it from the grid. Yeah, you're paying taxes. Do you pay your income tax? So we're all contributing to the system one way or another. I mean, if the person wants to be the purest anarchist, then I hope you're living in a little shack somewhere, completely off-grid, growing all your own food and not doing anything with taxpayer money at all. So the real reason I do this, though, is as tough as I am on law enforcement officers, as far as holding them to a higher standard, saying that they need to be the first police force of the police force, as tough as I am, if you're listening to me in your law enforcement, you're on our side. We need you. We need you, and I respect you, and that's why I offer you a discount. And the way I look at it is this way. All these people that say shit like that, I guarantee you if their life is in danger, they want you to come save it. And even if you, most of you guys, even if you know how they feel about law enforcement, you'll still save their life. And law enforcement guys put themselves at risk on a daily basis. And even though they're often used for wrong purposes, nobody goes into being a police officer because they want to be evil to other people. Um, there's a lot of abuse in the police and law enforcement community. There really is. And I do come down hard on law enforcement. And I do say that you guys should be held to a higher standard. And you should. And I do think that a cop that witnesses another cop violate a citizen's rights and says nothing and does nothing while it occurs is just as guilty as the one committing the action. I think both of you should lose your badge and probably go to jail. I really do. But that means if you can hear me say that and you're still here and you're in law enforcement, yeah, we need you. We need you doing that job. We need more people like you. So try to encourage others to be the kind of law enforcement officer you are. And think very carefully before you put your hands on somebody or take somebody's liberty. Understand that every time you do that, officers, if you were me, you'd be guilty of kidnapping.
and assault. And you've been given a level of authority beyond the average person to make judgment calls in certain situations. And that makes your judgment very important. Anyway, with that, let's get into the uh, history segment. The history segment, 1368 is the episode, so 1368 is the year. Uh, two today, one is the Mongols, China, Tamerlane, and the New Iran, which you can read for yourself by going to tspwiki.com if you want to know about that. I'm going to read to you today why Charles is called Wise. Now, Charles the Wise uh, was the heir apparent king of France, took over from his father, and did a lot of stupid crap, okay? <laughs> Almost burned himself up and uh, caused a, you know, an insurrection and you know all within like a month. So... Why do we call this guy wise? Well, here you go from Alex. Alex says, In the modern day, the Louvre is best known as the French art gallery where Mona Lisa resides, but the Louvre won't become an art gallery until 1678. In 1368, it is a fortress in the process of becoming a royal residence. King Charles the Wise of France now has established a library in the Louvre. A candle will remain lit at all times so the king may read. He will commission translations of the great works such as those of St. Augustine and Euclid. He will also have Nicholas Orsummy, a scientist, produce a plain language explanation on the theory of a stable currency. I'd kind of like to read that, I think. Claude Mallet, the king's valet de Chambray, is uh, a position reserved for artists, musicians, and the like, will serve as the first librarian. Uh, here's Alex Shrugged, who puts these segments together for us at tspwiki.com's take. After the ridiculous things King Charles did in the past, one wonders why he would be called wise. We can cut him some slack because he has been told by an expert that he might drop dead at any minute. Yeah, people kind of behave a little crazy when they're, uh, they think they might not be drawn their last breath. This may explain why he plays hard and why he works hard. King Charles is called the wise because of his promotion of education and creating a library that makes available important works of the French language. Today, the French National Library is a repository for all French publications. In the United States, the library serves a similar function. I thought I would take my take like totally out of left field on this one for you guys today. Um, this is an example of why society actually owes a debt to psychopaths. Seriously. It, it, it's psychopaths that have created government. It's psychopaths that believe in the use of force on other individuals solely for the purpose of making them conform to their will. But we do come from basically a savage race of people. And the concept of anarchy is not the concept that you see on TV where everybody just shoots each other and, and wallows in their own filth or whatever and the, the strong take from the weak. The concept of anarchy is a very high-level goal to evolving as a species to a point where we can exist without the use of force. That's, that's the goal, that no man should imply his will onto another man, and that the use of force should only be for self-defense and self-preservation by those who don't conform to the concept of not using force to get your way. But we had a, society, a lot of society, including a lot of things like the great works and the libraries that preserve the knowledge, were assembled by government. In other words, by psychopaths. So as much as we detest the psychopath, on some levels, we owe them for modern civilization, for pulling it together. That's a very difficult thing to justify when your belief is that force should be removed, and mine is. But this is where, and this is where we're back to the conversation about law enforcement officers and how can you give them a discount, whiny-ass crap that I get from people. There's a big difference between where I want to go, where we are, and how long it takes to get there. 
and what that delta is. And the reality is we have a lot of people in our society today that will cheat, lie, still, kill, murder, harm others. And for the time being, some level of government is required. I think we have far too much. And you'll hear examples about that today after I get done with Joe's segment. Many examples today, honestly, of government overreaching its authority. But on some levels, government has been necessary to make society what it has become. And I mean that on the positive side, not the negative side. So I'd like to hear from those of you out there who share my belief that the highest ideal is anarchism. How do you get there from here? Because you know damn well we can't just do it the way some of you guys envision, which just shut it off. It won't work. All enlightened anarchists realize that there's a path there, there's a road there. I believe it leads through libertarianism and minarchism and then eventually to anarchism, and it's probably generations away. I'd like to start the journey, please. But those of you that are anarchists in the community, I'd like to hear from you how society could have become what it's become without the psychopaths bringing order to the chaos. Was it possible? I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm saying if I think about the history of mankind, I don't know that it was. The other question is, was it worth it? With as many people who have been murdered by government, was it worth it? And then if it wasn't worth it, but it happened anyway, how do we not squander it? I've talked about government before and, and taxes being like a liver from a person who was in an auto accident. You know, is it worth it to kill one person to save another? No. It's really not. But once that person's dead, how do we not squander the resource? So if, if, if psychopaths have brought us to where we are, the bad and the good, how do we not squander the good? How do we retain order? How do we retain protections for the weak and, and, and devolve government into nothingness over time? How do we actually take that journey? Love to hear your comments in the comment section. It's not an easy answer. A lot of people in the anarchist community want it to be easy. They say, oh, we could if we just tried. We never tried, so we don't know. It do no, it doesn't work that way. You have a system that is so ingrained right now that's going to take time to wind down. How do we begin the process and how do we complete the process? All right, folks, and with that, before we uh, get into your feedback today, I wanted to bring uh, Josiah Wallingford on. Uh, a lot of you guys know him from Brink of Freedom, and, of course, he is our uh, our head farm steward at uh, Elijah Springs Farm and a partner of mine with Permit Ethos, and he's here to give us an update on what's gone on so far since he went off to the farm about a month and a half ago. Hey, Josiah, man, welcome to uh, the Survival Podcast. It seems like not long ago you would uh, just be sitting next to me instead of across Skype. Yeah, yeah, uh, thanks. It's good to be here. Uh, wish I was sitting next to you, but uh, with you being here, not me being there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So, uh, you know, we wanted a lot of people to uh, – we have a lot of people since we've launched the, the PDC, and uh, you guys have started things up there at Elijah Springs, want to know what's going on. We've got some stuff coming with videos soon, but I wanted to get you on to talk about what's gone on so far. And one of our biggest challenges – so far has been infrastructure because we didn't have a working farm and we had a house that was designed for a family and we had some sheds and some old chicken coops and we've had to turn that into, well, a community. So can you tell folks about what you guys have done so far with that? Yeah, yeah. So the uh, the first thing we, we had to do was get the tenants' housing in order because we had that's the, the first people that came uh, were the tenants. So the on the farm there's this original homestead and that's where the people that built this farm 
originally lived. And it's just a tiny 9 by 15 foot uh, house, I guess you would call, a tiny home on top of a root cellar. Um, so we rebuilt that tiny home uh, and, and put in power and, and everything so that we get our first tenant here uh, into that housing and comfortable. Um, right after that, we started up on what we call the gated community, uh, which is actually an old chicken coop. Uh, it was divided in half, half chicken coop, half dogs. Um, so they, they, were, they were raising dogs and training them for hunting. And so what we did is we went through and, and just sprayed the, the entire Damn thing it. out. It was, it was just pretty nasty in there. We cleaned it up. We put in the flooring, we put in the walls, we put in the electricity, um, and, and we had to clean the, the gated area because they had a bunch of old farm junk in there. So we cleaned that out, and it's looking really good. We're, we're using that for uh, for woofers, especially if they're co-ed, because uh, it's a co-ed situation. So if two woofers have a relationship or whatever, we'll try and give them some privacy in there. Um, but we can divide it in half um, in case, you know, more come. Um <clears throat> So that's what we did with the, the gated community or the old chicken coop, and, and it's it's looking really good. It's actually down a uh, hill from the house, and what's funny is there's a uh, an old outhouse there, which was the original outhouse, and the pipe runs from the outhouse out the side of the hill, so everything just flows out <laughs> to the side of the hill down into the creek. <laughs> that's how the old outhouse works. Yep, yep. So uh, obviously we're not using that anymore. Uh but but anyway, so we got the gated community built up. That looks great. The next thing we did was we, we worked on the bunkhouse. And so we have a main bunkhouse that we're really working on and making nice, but this temporary bunkhouse we put under the house in the, in the basement. And uh, it turned out pretty well. We have, we have some walls up with electricity. Uh, the, there's refrigerators in there for all the woofers, and it's, it's pretty comfortable down there for them. Um, they have Wi-Fi and everything. And... Uh, and so that's that's the means to an end uh, until we can get the main bunkhouse built. But it's it's darn comfortable. That, um, you know, we put a lot into it to make it comfortable. So it's a it's a well established temporary housing for the bunkhouse for the t- uh, woofers. Um, of course, with that we put in uh, temp showers so they could take showers throughout throughout the day. Um, a temporary kitchen so they could cook stuff for themselves. Um, we are now. Just in the final stages of the parking lot, which was a huge deal. Um, basically, we took the southernmost um, field, uh, or as close as you could call a field, uh, with all the rolling hills, um, and turned it into a parking lot slash campground slash RV spot slash recreational area. So basically, the D7 came in with a with a 320 excavator and. They flattened it out. Uh, well, it's on it's on one to two percent grade, uh, so we have proper runoff. Um, so that should be finished up tomorrow, and then we can start planting seed, the cover crop into it to really establish it. Um, there's also a greenhouse spot there, so they cut back part of the hill so we can, so we can put down a a large greenhouse, and I'm really excited to get that that up and going. The recreational area is right behind the barn, so we're actually putting in a concrete slab uh, with a full-on kitchen, bathrooms, um, and that's and that's all for the woofers uh, and tenants and, and the folks living here and working here. And then above that is the top of the garage, which is being converted into a temporary apartment uh, slash bunkhouse. Um, 
So as soon as the, the apartment area is taken care of up there, uh, it'll be the bunkhouse for the woofers and, and that are staying here on site, woofers and uh, element partners. So that's that's the current infrastructure and ongoings there. Um, as soon as tom- after tomorrow, we're building up the there's two ponds on the uh, they're called a hauler here, but it's uh, the ravine next to us. Uh, so we're putting a top pond in there and another pond right below it, and then later on a giant pond below that. So it'll be three stacked ponds down this down this ravine. Um, pretty cool, pretty cool uh, earthworks going on there. Well, that's like one of the most key important things we can do right now because our biggest challenge out there with livestock and irrigation for establishment irrigation is water because all the water's at the bottom. And I think a lot of people, when you say hill, don't understand West Virginia Hill. Yeah. It's not a Montana mountain, but it's also not the rolling hills of East Texas. This is as steep as, you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred foot change in elevation or a relatively short period hill and getting water up there is difficult but there's lots of catchment up there so once you have that water in you're able to then use gravity to do all the work yeah yeah there's tons we get 52 inches of rain here a year and uh so we get a lot of rain but it all springs out so it just goes through the mountain and springs out at the bottom of it and we need to capture that higher so that we can start giving our livestock water and, and and with that, you know, we just got uh, cows and pigs on the farm, our first cows and pigs. So so they need water. Right now we're having to haul water to them until this, uh, this pond situation is taken care of. And I think one of the things that people need to take away from this, because we've heard from a lot of people that say, like, I want to do a farm like this. I want to cooperate with Permaethos. Is the, the initial infrastructure isn't what we usually think of with permaculture around care of the earth. A lot of it is let's not screw the earth up, but we have to focus first on the care of the people. And this amount, this type of infrastructure is a huge ramp up. So that's something that if somebody's looking to partner with us in the future, they really should be thinking about not just where you'd put a swale in, not just where you'd plant an orchard, but how you're going to house the people that are going to do the work for you and do so in a way that actually takes good care of them so that they want to be there. Yeah, exactly. And it might be that, you know, you, if, if someone wants to be a farmer, uh, have a farm with Permethos, that we, when we talk to you, you know, we say, you're going to need uh, this infrastructure in place, and how much time are you going to need to get that infrastructure in place before we come, or is this something you want us to do infrastructure-wise? Um, because it's you know it could take a year, maybe two years, to get all the infrastructure uh, up and going at a at a steady pace. Yeah, definitely. So let's kind of move on now to the current living situations. We've got all these people here in this infrastructure. So how are we housing them, and how are we caring for people here? Sure. So the we did the original homestead for one of our tenants, um, Mike. Uh, Jesse came and he brought his 32 foot uh, fifth, fifth wheel RV. And the reason he brought that is because he's got uh, his kids and his wife that are joining us shortly. Um, and so they want to be able to live in that RV and they want to be able to take the RV to the next uh, Permethos farm that they go to. So that's that's what. Uh, Jesse, our tenant, is doing, and Mike's living in the original homestead. He's completely content there. Um, our woofers are in the bunkhouse right below the house. Uh, we're working on building up the, the main bunkhouse, um, and they're also living in that, that gated community. Uh, Kelly, our video guy, he also brought his RV, but he is going to be building a tiny home on the property because his RV can be making him money elsewhere 
uh, that's his own little element uh, <laughs> partnership with himself. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so eventually we'll have the tiny home up for him, and uh, and he'll be able to send his RV off to to Atlanta and other places where they need it for filming movies. Um, my wife and myself are living in the main house uh, on the property, the owner's house. Uh, Kevin and Charlie are the owners here, and uh, they've been gracious enough to allow us to live in the house until we can get our home built here, um, which would be the steward's home, essentially. When, when we move on, it'll be where the stewards are living. Um, and then Kevin and Charlie, they come about once a month, and, of course, they stay in the main house as well. The main house is, is large enough that it has, you know, five bedrooms, and uh, Kevin and Charlie are so comfortable in their original bedroom living situation and and holly and myself are able to take the upstairs that's great and uh, i think one of the things people need to understand is how much cooperation has had to go in to make this thing happen and you mentioned like charlie and kevin are there like once a month and that's their original plan but during this ramp up period they've actually been there a lot more and these guys are getting in and humping it on on weekends with everybody else oh yeah it's um we'll have video but yeah they're they're up there with everybody else kicking butt um Getting the projects done that need to get done, just getting the infrastructure done and in place so that we can we can really start uh, vamping up the permaculture uh, uh, vegetation and, and animal care. Absolutely. So on the animals, we we've gotten some animals. You kind of mentioned that, but can you only go go through the list of the livestock we've got on the farm now? Yeah. So we we got uh, two cows. We got these two jerseys, um, great milk producers. They're milking cows, and they have two uh, calves. One one calf on each of them. Um, we have them in the first paddock zone that we built, which is uh, the barn, the existing barn. And so we paddocked off the field above it and below it so that they can rotate through there um, until we have the fencing done, which is another huge project that's coming up this year. Uh, we're very excited for uh, uh, Darby Simpson's helping us with all of that, and, and that's going to be cool. But until then, we have them in the, the temporary paddocks at the barn, so that we can get them in the barn and, and melt them and everything. Um, we also got pigs in. Uh, Mike, one of the tenants, brought in nine uh, piglets and two sows. Um, these are American guinea pigs, so they they are you know, they, they are great uh, scavengers, um, but they do take longer to raise than you know your pink pigs. These are black um, these are black, black pigs, and and they they scavenge great great deal and do an awesome job on the land. Currently, we're uh, using electronet uh, fencing and paddocking them. I'm sorry, uh, double strand. They've already been trained for uh, for double strand uh, fencing. So we have them on double strand fencing, and we're paddocking them every day. Um, so those are the main livestock that we got on the property. We also have sugar, which is our mascot. Uh, Nicholas Ferguson provided us with sugar, and, and she's a great dog. She's great Pyrenees and Anatola mix. Um, and and she's been roaming the countryside here, uh, loving every minute of it. Uh, so Dick's one of the few fathers that when he tells his children the dog went off to live on the farm is telling the truth. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And, and love it. it's her heaven. Yeah, she really did go to live on a great big farm where she can chase things. How many times has that lie been told? But this time it's true. Yep. I just thought of that now when you were saying that. <laughs> Uh, so we're, we're really happy to have her. Um, she's unfortunately not the perfect model of a um, livestock guardian dog, and that's why Nick was able to give it to us, give her to us, um, because she just likes people too much. Um, he's tried to, you know, train her to be the livestock guardian dog for a year, and uh, she just likes people way too much to to effectively 
fill that role. So now she's the mascot and, and hangs out with everybody at the farm around the, around the farm doing projects. Um, Kevin and Charlie have a couple of dogs that they bring with them every once in a while and a cat. Um, Jesse has his dog, who is here full time. She's a uh, Ridgeback and Boxer mix. Um, she's a sweetheart of a dog. Uh, very nice to have her around as well. It's it's really good for morale to have these these dogs around with them while they're you know tromping around the woods and and doing all this infrastructure work. Um, we also have a raccoon. Um, <laughs> we have we have deterred the raccoon thus far using mint. So we we put up mint, and that was actually one of the woofers' ideas, which is which has worked out great so far. So we had a problem with the, the raccoon coming up on the porch and knocking plants over and mm. you know, pooping all over the deck. So we put up mint and haven't seen it yet. I have some Victor one-and-a-half coil springs if we decide he's too much and needs to be more than deterred, if he, if he needs to become a cap. Yeah. <laughs> we also have, the, we also have night ahead. vision, so if we have That's to true. take care of it that way, too. That's true. Um, and on your notes, I see fish. What's up with fish? Oh, we have fish. We have a, There's an existing pond here, and uh, it's got a bunch of bluegill in there and some catfish. And so we've been catching them. I mean, we catch and release mostly, but every once in a while we get a good one that we want to throw on the dinner table. So that's been a lot of cool. fun, too. Cool. So you guys have actually already been reaching out into the local community, too. Yeah, yeah. We've had great response from the community. They're actually... The uh, the contractors we we brought in a bunch of contractors for the earthworks and had them do bids on the jobs and uh, they're already talking at the bars with the other farmers and stuff on the crazy things we're doing here so that's been uh, that's been fun to hear uh, secondhand from everybody else um, but we we really started uh, reaching out to the community there's a small gas station just down the road from us which is rare where we're at because it's we're pretty we're pretty out there in the woods and uh, and so this. This local gas station called J J and D's, or we're just calling it J D's gas station. Um, the owner of that uh, just opened it last month. She just got gas in uh, yesterday, and so she did a uh, fundraiser. We came down there with all the employees at the farm and really showed our support. Bought everything we could, um, food wise, and the, and of course, you know, our our guys really love doing that as well, and that helped her out. So so we're really excited to have her, and we we want her to succeed. We also uh, have this great neighbor, Mike Huffman, um, down the road from us, and he knows everybody in the community. He's a great asset. He had uh, uh, cattle here on the farm uh, before we got here and a little bit during while we were here. Um, but we go down there every day, pick up – we go to his uh, – he, he does horses for 4-H, his girls do. And so they have this really nice horse uh, stable. We go in there, and we clean those stables for him which, of course, he loves and his girls are really excited about because they don't have to do that anymore. And, of course, we do horse manure. So we, we go down the road and, and do that every day. Uh, similar relationship uh, down the road by JD's gas station is a, uh, a lady who does goats. And so we go there every three days and pick up uh, all our goat manure and then, of course, lay down uh, fresh straw for, for the goats um, after we clean it all out. And uh, she's been really happy about that. She's providing, she's able to provide us with uh, some raw goat milk in return, um, which has been awesome. And of course, we're getting the manure for our composting. Very cool. Yeah, um, man. Let me. So another asset we found was that uh, Mike's neighbor, which is also his nephew, um, 
has a ton. He's got this fence running along his property on the downhill side, so he gets a ton of leaves. Um, they're black walnut leaves, so we can't use that right away, but it's great material for mulch within a year, so we need to let it sit and drain out uh, after a year because it's, it's poisonous stuff to put directly on the plants. But it is a resource that we're able to collect off of the property without having to, to take all our mulch, which we're perfectly fine with letting it, some of it be in the forest and, uh, and do its, its thing naturally. Um, so that was another great asset. But it is black walnut. We have to be careful with it. So we're putting it to the side, letting it sit for a year, and then uh, chipping it up. Uh, we also got down the road from us, we found a, a, a hay provider. Uh, he just, it's just all grassland that is on his farm around here, and, and he, multi, uh, he, he processes into hay. So we get uh, these these big rounds for 20 bucks and he's right down the road. So that has been awesome. Um, so we're helping out. That's, that's the community building so far where every day we're talking more people. And as we talk to them, they're actually referring us other people. So, uh, Kim, the lady that owns that JD's gas station, she of course knows everybody in the area too, because they go in there for a beer or whatever. And, uh, so she's calling us all the time. Hey, this guy's got this for you. And I think that you guys really like it there. So that's been really cool. Um, we're also planning on, on a barbecue in the near future for all of the uh, the farmers and workers around in our area, and I think that'll be a really strong community building, showing showing them what we're doing here, and uh, you know, because all they know right now is the talk from the bar. They don't, they haven't gotten to see what's going on here, and, and I think it's going to be a big uh, eye opener. Yeah, I think so, and I think especially like the fencing that Darby came up with when we brought him to consult with us. You're on a piece of property that's not easy to do this type of thing with. The, the normal thing is you just lay out your paddocks in rows and you have a movable gate and you move your pigs or your cows or whatever through it. And, you know, you could set up 40 acres that way if you had the material in a day with yeah. one machine and a good crew. This is more complicated, but all the land out there is like the land we're on. And I think that we may have a, a whole element partner or farm opportunity there just with helping other farmers and ranchers in the areas implement the system that you guys are going to put in because it allows them to take care of their land in a way that most people today raising cattle, they understand paddocking. They may not understand it at the deep permaculture level, but they do get moving the cattle. But doing that on these hills is difficult, and you guys have come up with a way to do that, and we're hopefully, depending on the schedule, we're going to be able to run a workshop with that where people can come in and learn how to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. So it is going to take a lot of time because we're on these, uh, it's really steep land. So instead of a, a normal fencing operation, you put in your post with a, like a tractor, and the tractor's got a, post, a fence post uh, pounder behind it. Um, that is with, you know, if you're affording that. Otherwise, you're digging posts by yourself, you know, by hand. But anyway, um, normally farms are, they're, they're hauling a, a post pounder behind them on the tractor. We just can't do that here because it's so steep. Uh, some of the roads that you're on, the ridge is above you, and you need to fence that. And there's trees everywhere. So we actually found a guy that attaches those post pounders to an excavator arm. So he's able to reach up and around all these obstacles and get that, that fence posting put in. And the other th cool thing is that we're using, we're not using conventional, uh, fence posts, which people are used to using, which is just, you know, wood or metal. Uh, we're using these fiberglass fence posts. And these fiberglass fence posts are actually from old oil wells. So uh, they, they use it for the piping for oil. And, uh, 
these are either defected ones or ones that have been uh, cleaned out but aren't um, viable for uh, for transporting oil any longer. So we're able to recycle that material by using it as the fence post uh, fence posting. And so, um, of course, there's a lot of it. But it's, we're looking at just over 30,000 feet of fencing um, <laughs> to get all these paddocks in. But these, this is a more, more inexpensive way to do it, and it's going to last a lot longer. Um, problems, you know, every farmer has is dealing with fencing all the time. They have to go out and repair these posts uh, that, that rot away and so, or, or put in this treated lumber that's uh, not very good for, for the ground around it. And so I really think it's going to be a really cool eye-opener for, for farmers around here to see that in action and to see the, the paddock systems that we're setting up so that because a lot of these guys they they don't necessarily know what paddocking is, but they've heard of it. They've heard of Joel Salatin. Um, mm-hmm. they, they're interested in it, but they're not sure about it. Um, and now here they can see it live in action. Um, hopefully that takes off, and they want to do it themselves. And yeah, that's an element partnership in itself uh, with the, the local farmers going in and putting all that fencing in. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, you get into the multi generational thinking there. Fiberglass posts last longer than people, even when they're buried in the dirt. I mean, that's that's what's a, a bit a big flaw in a lot of these systems, and that's something Darby's been doing a while, and uh, it makes a lot of sense. Moving on, let's get into the uh, the Permaethos website because you've done a ton of work with that. Yeah, the the, the Permaethos website is a huge uh, website. I, there's a ton we're doing, and so um, we've gotten. An awesome response from it. We've gotten, uh, we put out a call for developers. The community stepped up, and we got some developers for that. That was awesome. Uh, we, so some of the things we've been working on. First, we started with the main Permethos site, which is, uh, you know, an introduction to what Permethos is, and provides uh, the gateway basically to these other sub sites. Um, and so one of the sub sites is the community, uh, community.permethos.com, which is a forums. Um, it, it's a uh, location finder, so if you want, you can put in what county you're in or what city you're in or as detailed as you want, and others can find other people in their same area. Um, we put in, and the forums have just taken off. Um, I've been very, very happy with all the responses in there. People are really getting some good conversations going, and uh, it's, it's just a joy to go in there and talk to everybody. And I think some people maybe need to know this. Like, even though the forums are largely populated by right now by people taking the PDC, they're not closed off. They're open to anybody. Yeah, yeah, we open it up to everybody. I mean, for me, those is an open source. We want people to be able to communicate with each other. There are sections that are closed off. Um, for, uh, for example, we have the founding members uh, group now. Nobody can post to that except for us, but the only founding members can join that group so that we can post things specifically for the founding members, like districts sure. and, and such. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's open. We want everybody to partake and enjoy um, and learn. So we opened that up. We also added the barter blanket uh, just uh, the other uh, two days ago or yesterday. Um, barter blanket's uh, already starting up. Uh, we had, This is actually the first announcement of it we've run. We just kind of let it... Um, let people trinkle in and try it out, and uh, it's it's been working really well. We do have some more development to do in there, where where you can actually post counter offers. But as of now, it's it's a listing, so you can list uh, things that you have uh, up for trade or or whatever, and and people can reply back to it. And uh, that's been really cool. I'm I'm excited for that to see that really uh, spurred off and 
and get people connected. You know, seed exchange and, and everything in our community is a is a huge deal. <clears throat> we also did the uh, we have the learning center, which is where you'll be able to go and take all your courses. Um, the PDC, of course, is the one that we have up there now, and and we'll be adding a lot more to that later. We're really excited for that. Um, we have the events page. You can go to the events page and see everything we're doing on the farm, all the workshops we're doing. You can come and join us for any specific project that you like uh, that's on there. So, for example, when we're doing a, a building, we'll have that as an event. Uh, on this day, from this day, we're going to be building this building. And if you'd like, you can, you'll see that on the calendar, once again, open source. And you can actually request to come and, and help out with that. Um, and, of course, workshops. We'll have all the workshops posted there. You can sign up uh, for the workshop right there with all the information, get your ticket, uh, and, and bring, it to, bring it to the farm uh, when you're ready to join that workshop. So that was a really cool program we found, uh, and it ties in really nicely with what we're doing here. Um, once again, we got the development from, you know, I just put out a, a quick email to everybody saying, hey, we're, we're, look, we're looking for some developers. If you're a developer and would like to help, and, man, the responses were great. We have some great guys working on stuff. We also have a uh, development firm that we're going to be working with to help with some of the more complicated inner workings of the multi-site because, really, this is a multi-site. We have the main site and a bunch of sub-sites, and they all need to be able to tie together um, so, that, so that when you're on the learning center and then you go to the community, Everything ties together that, you know, these are the courses I've taken, and you can show a badge next to your name saying, yeah, I took the PDC, uh, things like that. So it's a lot of inner working development, but um, it's, it's, it's looking really good, and we've, we've gotten really far really quickly. I'm very excited about that. I think what's really important about what we're doing with the site is the ability to be more encompassing than just having a farm in West Virginia. Like, there's so many people that want to be part of this community and we're trying to find ways to involve as many people as want to be involved at the level that they can be involved with at the current time, whether it's taking a course and establishing their own satellite business, whether it's eventually planning toward building a bigger farm, whether eventually they want to come work with us on one of their, our farms, they want to intern with us, they want to womp with us, whatever it is. But the, the website's the great enabler that allows this intercommunication. And then the other thing we want is we want people to kind of form their own little splinter groups and, and just do their own thing. And yeah. so if we can empower that, great. And I don't think people get how much work goes into making a site function this way. Um, the first thing we pretty much did was kill the HostGator server, and we had to move this over to my dedicated box. I'm right now picking up a second dedicated box that's going to run some of my other sites, and it's going to communicate with this dedicated box so that these two dedicated servers are, are backing each other up and acting in redundancy. So if Ethos goes down, if TSP goes down, we have a failover. You might lose a couple hours of content at most, but it'll be there. And, and just that piece of infrastructure is, is complex. It's not, you don't just like call up 100 terabytes and say, give me another box and do this for me. I've got admins from the TSP forum who have been, you know, Steve-O and Mr. Bill have been just huge helps to us in getting all this stuff, other stuff done that are going to oversee getting that done so that you guys can keep working with ethos and not have to worry about it. And I, I don't think in this day and age where everybody sees websites pop up that, yeah, you can install a WordPress blog in, in honest to God, 30 seconds if you want to. But when you want to start making it interactive like this, it is complex. Oh, yeah, it's a huge undertaking. I mean, this, the, the amount of work that goes into the back end of, of getting this thing 
uh, to the level that we're doing it at is huge. It's not just a, a Permethos single farm, like you said, a website. This is a huge community site, and it's a knowledge base. I mean, this thing is meant to be um, so that people can come, gain a great deal of knowledge with our open source um, community and, uh, and, and business ethics and be able to get all the information they want on this kind of stuff. And if they're doing an awesome job and they want to become a part of Permethos, awesome. And, uh, and we hope that happens. We want to encourage that by giving them the knowledge. And so that's another thing we're working on is the database. Um, the database site is going to be, you know, plant listings, perennials based on your agricultural zones and, and climates. I mean, we're going to have business listings, all kinds of things in that database. I'm really excited to get off that up and off the ground. That's probably a month or two out, but that's going to be huge. Um, we got Permethos TV in the works. Um, so that's. We'll that might be the biggest announcement we have today for people. Uh, that that's coming, and, and, you, and we, we just had our owners meeting on Saturday like we do every Saturday, and we came up with a way that we're going to make Permethos TV really cool for students of the PDC. Yeah, and that's a huge undertaking as well. We're talking about massive amounts of hard drive space um, to, to hold all these videos. Luckily, we don't have to house it on the TSP server. Um, <laughs> no. God bless Vimeo. Yeah. <laughs> But, man, uh, that's going to be really cool. You're going to be able to, you know, drill down into the, the segments or the elements that you're interested in and watch TV on that on, on that channel. Um, so, and, you know, we're, we're working on getting it so that you can put it on uh, other devices, external devices, to stream it to your actual television. But we plan on a, a great deal of wealth and knowledge in the, the Permethos TV. And let's, let's just kind of explain to people what that's going to be, because you and, and, and I and Kelly Heron whiteboarded this out like two and a half months ago, and we didn't really talk a lot about it. We just told people there'd be something coming. So basically the way this is going to work is, is Joe and Kelly, of course, are going to be filming the PDC for the PDC students, and a lot of people were like, I just want to see videos. I don't want to think of PDC. And I'm like, just wait. Give us a, a minute here. And you guys now are working on categories and subcategories. you got work going on all the time. So Kelly's going to start documenting that stuff into smaller episodes, one bite here, one bite there, what's going on, how this is being done, and just uploading tons and tons of video like that that people can pick down and drill down and pick what they want. And that's going to be a subscription service. So people that want just that, it's going to be a low monthly fee. I don't know that we've set a price on it yet. Founders, just like we said, if they want to subscribe, we'll pay less for it. But what we're going to do is this is actually probably going to come out because this is easier, easier. So we don't just say it's easy. It's easier than, let's say, the first module of the PDC that you and Kelly have to start working on. So all of our, our, our founding members and our first class PDC members, when we launch the first stuff for this, they get free access to it until the PDC starts. Yeah. And, and I think Kevin, Kevin came up with that. I think I think that's a brilliant idea because we want to get some content to these folks and we kind of need to test it a little bit, too, before we go full-on mainstream with it. Yeah, and we have a – I mean, there's just a ton going on. Even while we're in the process of doing the PDC, there's a ton of other things going on. And we really – it's really important information and, and good information that we think the viewers would love to see. So um, why not just start pushing that content out to everybody? It doesn't make much sense to make them wait for – however long it takes to get to the end of the PDC and then release that information. Which yeah. A ton of videos sitting there waiting for not to, for nobody to see. Well, and we've got a guy like Kelly sitting there, so if you're not filming PDC, he should film something. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I, I think this might be 
outside of the the people that want to be directly heavily involved in some way, whether it's an element partnership, whether it's a remote partnership, whatever, I think that Permaculture TV is going to be, that's our broader audience. That's something that somebody that goes, I don't know what an ethos is, I don't care, but I want to see more permaculture. We're going to be able to provide content at a level of detail and quality and consistency and quantity that no one's ever done before in permaculture. Yeah, you're not going to get this off of YouTube. No, no, you, you're not. You're just never going to get this off of YouTube. And, you know, I've done enough shaky iPhone videos to know you're not going to get the quality that we're going to be doing with this stuff either. So that's going to be kind of like our flagship product to the main world, right, versus the internal inner community stuff and the direct-to-consumer sales off the farm and the, and the direct education model. This is going to be far more of uh, anybody that really wants to know more about permaculture, just sign up for the subscription service and start watching this instead of crap like the Cardassians in Jersey Shore. Yeah, we're, I mean, we want to provide awesome quality um, and very informative video throughout the site. Permethos TV, as well as, for example, at the uh, Learning Center, when you're taking the course, we have Q&A that actually has a, a, a webcam capture built into the software so that you can, you can uh, get answers directly from the instructors that they can just simply capture right there without any other issues. And it's Yeah, I mean, like, just so people understand how that's going to work, like, the PDC is our first class. Um, you're up there busting your ass. So Nick and I, who are skating by because we're at our own little homesteads, uh, are going to take up the Q&A. So when a student asks a question, Nick and I, or I or Nick, depending on how deep the answer needs to be, will give answers to it. And that will be plugged right into that question at the bottom of the module. So when a student gets done with the, their module and they have questions, they can first look and see, has anybody already asked that question? And if so, it's not just a textual answer. It's myself or Nick or both of us explaining in detail. And I think one of the cool things about that is if you came to me as an instructor and I gave you a lesson and then you ask me the question again and I explain it again, you're pretty much going to get the same explanation I gave you. But if that person were to go to you, Joe, and say, well, what the hell is Jack talking about here? Since you have a different way of explaining it, it'll, it'll make sense to that student. So by, in this case, it's flipped around. So you're doing the main instruction. So a, a, a student has like a question, like that student may just not have like vibrated with the way you answered that. So by getting a totally different perspective, it broadens the understanding. And I think that's one of the things that's going to be really um, probably never done before with a PDC where a different instructor gives the answer to just the Q&A. And we got a lot of this idea, too, from Jeff Lawton, because I don't know about you, when I took his online PDC, I got all, I'd say I got more from the Q&A videos than I did from the PDC. Maybe that's because I've taken other PDCs, but that was like one just extremely valuable to just see that many questions answered. Oh, yeah, because when you're teaching a PDC, you, you're, you're not thinking about every question that everyone has. And with this system... Well, you can't. Yeah. You've got 72 hours to condense 14 chapters of a manual that's written, you know, in a way that you have to read a paragraph for five minutes to fully understand one paragraph. Yeah, yeah. you can't you can't get everybody's questions in that 72 hours. But what we can do is create a system where everybody can ask their questions. People can vote up their questions. So if they have a similar question, they can say, "Yeah, I have that same question. Or, that's a great question. Upvote it." And then the instructors can go in and answer those questions. And other people, other students can try and uh, give their answer to those questions, too. And then, of course, whoever asked the question can say, that's an awesome answer to my 
to my question. That's what I was looking for. And, and start so everybody can see, you know, that's the question that they felt answered. And we're, we're automating this, but that's like, so that's going to make that workflow easier. But right now it's a ton of work to get it so that it is easier later. And that's, that's a lot of this stuff. It's infrastructure online. It's infrastructure on the farm. It's infrastructure in the community. Um, and on that note, we need more people. Yes. We just made a decision that we're going to bring on a third tenant, which was never in the plan. Uh, and you need some other folks. And so can you tell people about that? Yeah, so we need we need the extra tenant. Um, we're really going to be expanding, and we need to get people in here and get them trained up so that we can start other farms. Um, we need element partners. I mean, we have some, some pretty cool ideas for element partnerships we'll get to in just a minute. And then uh, we need woofers. We need people here that are wanting to learn. And this is an awesome opportunity that you're not going to get woofing at many other places because we're in infrastructure mode. If you want to go out and start your own farm, this is we're doing it. And this so, is what you need to do. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's a great opportunity if you're into woofing or if you just want to come hang out for a couple of weeks and help us and see what we're having to do to get this farm up and going. Uh, it's a perfect opportunity to just, just join us for, for those couple of weeks or longer. I think with our rollout plan over time with multiple farms like this, that's going to be one of the key things that Permaethos can do that no one else really can because there's like a mile-long line to go and, and, and wolf at Joe Salton's farm. You have to wait a year to get to go there and all. But you're going to go out and see a, a working farm, and there's nothing wrong with it, but it's just it's done. So the person that goes and does that then thinks, well, I'll go establish my farm. Okay, well, here's a big, empty-ass field. Good luck. Yeah, right? how did all this stuff get built? I mean, and like when you came here to intern with me, you know, I was very clear to people like this is not a working permaculture homestead yet. This is bare bones, rocky. And you were like, that's what I need to do. And I think that's an opportunity that maybe some people don't get. Like they want to go to like this full on permaculture farm, which is beautiful. And I love going to places like that, too. But if you want to build one, you need to go see one being built, not sit at one that's already been finished, because you underestimate the work and the complexities and everything that went into it. You, if you go to, like, Ben Falk's 10-acre homestead, you look at that and go, oh, my God. Once you build one, then you start to have a new understanding of what that took. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's a ton of work, and when you see it all already done, it looks very easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's designed to be easy when you're done building it, but, it, it, you know, you've got to build it first. Living in an apartment's easy, but building the building's not. Um, we should talk real quick before we wrap up, Joe, about what these opportunities really are, because I don't know if people completely understand what the opportunities are. The tenant farmer position pays a small monthly salary, you get a place to stay, you get meals, and you work your ass off. But the whole point of that is to eventually migrate into one of two things, to either go out and establish a farm as a head farm steward, doing what you're doing now, and eventually run that farm and run operations on that farm, and, and make your living off of a farm that we're managing as permaethos. Or to say, you know what, after doing this, not really my thing. Don't want to run a whole farm. I want to run a cattle operation and move into an element partnership where you're running a cattle operation on a farm and you're earning as much as you can possibly make off of that individual operation. So the tenant farmer is really an entry-level position into a career in permaculture farming. And I don't know that we've ever explained it quite that way, and I think we should because that's what it is. So, you know, people say, well, I want a career in permaculture. Well, here's an entry ramp. And I'm not guaranteeing you you're going to get to the top of the ramp because you've got to work hard, you've got to be diligent, you've got to do a good job, you've got to learn a lot. 
But I don't know of another opportunity like that anywhere. And with the momentum we have in this thing right now, there, there isn't. I can safely say there is no opportunity like this. Because even if you go and work with somebody that's really well-known and doing a really good job, they're not establishing multiple farms. We're already discussing, like, we need to make sure that these people are the kind of people that can go run a farm, or at least a, 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 a wing of a farm. And that's, that's what we're looking for, people with that potential. Because that's what we, we have people lining up already going, I have a farm, I have a farm, I have a like, whole hold on. Um, but that doesn't exist anywhere else. And every time we establish one successfully then that line gets longer. And there's so much unutilized land right now, and there's so many people that want to do this, that there's going to be a talent shortage. And our goal is to create the best talent in permaculture, period. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And not apologize for saying it either. Be like, well, you, know, you can do this, or you can you go over there and, and make purple come out of people's noses or whatever, but these are full-on working farms, and, and, and that's the opportunity. And the woofer, we call them woofers, that was the term you came up with, that's like, I'm not sure. Well, come on. Get out here, sweat with us, get in the dirt, and get a feel for it. See if it's what you want. Because as other opportunities come up, those guys that have come out and, and worked as volunteers for a week, two, three, they're at the top of the list for consideration. Yeah. Yeah, and we're finding, um, you know, the woofers that are here, are as they're working on these different projects, they're already, things are sparking in their mind of, oh, man, that, that's a great element I could really get into. The, the, the cows, for example. Yeah, let's, let's kind of finish up with what the element part of our opportunities, because this to me is, for the person that doesn't want, because you're learning right off, right, Joe, that running a whole farm is a lot more than people think. Oh, yeah. But the person who says, I want to make a living in permaculture, you know, we'll have element partnerships probably revolving around bees. I think Mike Jordan's got, you know, Elijah Springs pretty well wrapped with for that at least it seems that way for now but we'll have other opportunities like that we've just been talking uh, on the owner's call we talked about setting somebody up as a quail producer and we could do that for the right person now relatively quickly and easily at elijah springs yeah yeah there's there's tons of opportunities and and a lot of opportunities that we might not even see but the whoopers do and that's why we need people to come exactly because they'll see it what we don't see absolutely um, now, if people want to join the team, whether it's volunteer for a couple of weeks, whether it's be considered for an element partner or, or a wonfer, they can do that all on our site. You yep. got forms there, Joe. Can yep. you tell them about that? You just go to uh, permethos.com, and then you'll see the join our ta- uh, join the team up on the top. Uh, click on that, and there's the applications are there for woofing, uh, element partnership, or for tenant farming. Yeah, and we'd love to have, you know, a lot of you guys, you know, seriously consider doing this. And like I said, if you're you're sitting there going, I'm just not sure, because it is a big commitment to come out and say, well, I'm going to live on this farm for at least a year. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in a training program designed to go out and run another farm. I don't know where that other farm is going to be. Um, or I'm going to end up having to transition into something where I either have to go back to my old life or I have to make a new living based on what we're doing here. Um, and if you want a taste of it, Come out and volunteer for a couple weeks, you know. Uh, even a week, we'll we'll take we'll take what we can get. Um, I think you'd probably get a more immersed experience though if you were there for at least a couple weeks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, and if you want to get a, a feeling of kind of what the uh, what we're doing around here, uh, Kelly's put together an awesome quick video on a lot of the projects we've been doing. Just the, the guys how they've been working out and everything, and uh, that'll be in the show notes. Okay, cool. 
All right. Well, with that, uh, I'm going to move on, Joe, and we're going to go to taking people's feedback. Thanks for being with us on the air. And uh, I know we said it was going to be a 25 minute segment, but uh, hey, we got a lot going on. So uh, I don't. I think you probably have work to get back to. Yeah, I, I do. Thanks for having me, Jack. All right, Jeff. Talk to you later. All right, so that video Joe talked about it is up in the show notes, and it was posted earlier today to Perma Ethos as well. Uh, if you want to know more about Perma Ethos, follow Perma Ethos, etc. We do have YouTube channels, Facebook pages, etc. For Perma Ethos, not just my, you know, my stuff for TSP, where I also put the content out there where you can follow Perma Ethos directly. Um, with that, I want to get into uh, main stuff today, main feedback stuff today that uh, we have to cover. Um, I have. A interesting story for you guys that kind of jives with what I've been saying about college first and then your your secondary education, etc., migrating to online and deconstructing the education system, uh, empowering people with choice and reducing the cost per student of education. And and not and, and not falling into the trap with all the people who want to drag it. You just want education for the rich. No, I want education for anybody that damn well earns it. Do you know what? I, I think an education needs to be earned. I really do. I do not think you have a right to an education. Every child has a right to an education. No, you do not have a right to an education. I believe in this country, based on all the blessings that we have, you have the right to an opportunity for an education. You have a right to not have your attempt to educate yourself impeded. And I actually feel right now that the, the body that is supposed to be protecting that right is the one interfering with it by controlling it, and that's the government. In other words, what I mean is, especially as I grow, and along as a child, along with my parents, I have a right to choose my type of education. That's what I have a right to. I don't have a right to textbooks and being told what to think. Right? I have a right to see to my own education. I have a right to take the information in that I choose. I have the right as a free human being to not have you prevent me from learning. And with that concept, and you look at the Internet, and you look at the portability of information, and you ask yourself, why are we spending an ever-loving fortune to provide hard textbooks, sometimes at $100 or more apiece, to people in third grade? Why in the hell, in this day and age, are we spending forty, fifty, a hundred dollars to put a history book in the hands of a fifth grader? Why? It doesn't make any damn sense. And then we start looking at the cost of infrastructure for schools, the cost of transportation, the cost of feeding children, crappy meals, by the way. And all the problems with these institutions, doesn't it make sense that we would decentralize education if we were an enlightened group of people? And I've always said that it's all going to fall apart in the next 10 to 20 years. And it is. It is. The public education system, as you know it, will not even exist in 10 to 15 years. It won't just be radically different. It will be gone as you know it. But it would start with college, because college has more freedom of choice. Well... And I also said that you know people would embrace this change and it would start to empower people. How about this? Starbucks to offer workers discounted online college program. New York, Starbucks is rolling out a program that will allow its workers to earn an online college degree at Arizona State University at steeply discounted rates. The coffee chain is partnering with the school to offer the, the option to 135,000 U.S. employees who work at least 20 hours a week. The Seattle-based company says it will phase out its existing tuition reimbursement program, which gave workers up to $1,000 a year for education at certain schools. 
The company says the program doesn't require workers to stay at Starbucks after they earn their degrees. They can also pick a wide range of educational programs that aren't related to their Starbucks work. Starbucks CEO Harold Schultz is scheduled to announce the program Monday in New York City with the U.S. Education and Dun U.S. Education Secretary Arn Duncan about and about 340 workers and their family members in attendance. It's not clear how many workers will choose to participate in the new program or how much it will cost Starbucks Corporation. The company isn't disclosing the financial terms of its agreement with Arizona State University, but the program could significantly boost enrollment at Arizona State's University's online program, which charges tuition of about $10,000 a year. It's about the same as the school's traditional program. You can read the rest of the article if you want to. Let me, let me cut to the chase. Let me tell you what this really means. Arizona State University is full of shit charging people $10,000 to go to school online as, and charging them as much as a student at the university has to pay because the information has been packaged and is delivered and you should probably be charging about $1,000 to $1,500 a year maximum for that kind of prepackaged education delivered in an online format if you're really concerned about getting as many people educated as possible. Okay? And you can make a damn lot of money charging people $1,000, $2,000 bucks a year to go to school once that information has been portableized and made available that way. And the interaction with I mean, we're building this apartment ethos, right? Okay, we know how it works. We know what it takes. And we damn well don't have the, the reach, the breadth, the staff, all of the things and resources that Arizona State has. So what this actually means is Arizona State University is probably doing this at a, at a piecemeal rate of $2,500 or less a student. And the reason they don't want the number given out okay, is, well, they don't want to explain it. They don't want to explain it. They don't want somebody coming up going, hey, why am I paying $10,000 and they're getting it for $2,500? I mean, and the real answer is because they're going to buy like, I don't know, 5,000 or more of them a year. So we're giving them a quantity discount. But then that begs the question, shouldn't the quantity discount apply to everybody, really? Like, what case can you make to me? And, and here's the bigger, bigger question, right? I'm not vilifying Arizona State. I think this is great. I think they're actually being smart about the way they're doing this. Because they need a time to move into this model. And they're probably going to start closing some lecture halls in the future. Yeah, like a lot of universities are. And they figured we can be a leader in this field and get out and partner with Starbucks. But we also can't have a mass exodus overnight, so we'll keep the number quiet while we figure out how to handle this many students in this type of a model and, and transition to this model. And then they're going to start laying professors off. You think? I do. Because they'll say, well, I have tenure. Yeah, well, you know what? You don't have a building anymore. Because we've downsized the freaking university. This is the beginning of the, the, the shift in education to a smarter, faster, more effective, on-demand model. If I can have whatever number, like 70,000 movies available on-demand with Netflix, why can't my education be on-demand? Why can't, why can't my education be on-demand? Could you, could you imagine the university that does this first? Everything we do is on demand. Everything we do is on demand. How about this? Create your own degree. Not for the student, for the employer. Not for the student, for the employer. So um, IBM, for instance, could then say, you know what? We don't really give a flying, flipping shit 
if our people working in our programming department have a course in 16th century French literature. We're just going to delete that from the recommended lineup. And what if IBM can go in and tailor the degree to the students that they want? Think about this, right? So I know what I'm looking for in a candidate, a job candidate. And, and you big companies like IBM that hire thousands of people a year. I know I'm going to need about 500 people in the next couple years that have a certain background and skill set. Now, if I can take and create my own graduate by specking this out and saying this, this if completed with a GPA of X, guarantees you at least three years of employment at IBM in this job. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, so now I can either go to a school that tells me all this crap that I have to do, makes me come in every day, charges me $300 for a freaking textbook, because college textbooks go that high, so some professor that's retired somewhere can make money off of a scam where a book he could never sell to the free market, ever, or I can go here, get all my content online, and guarantee myself a job. What about this? You know, this is a three-year degree program. After the first year of degree completion, you come to work at this entry-level position, and you're mentored in that program through your next two years of completion. We'll even let you, let's say, work on your uh, on, on your schoolwork. In fact, we'll require it five hours a week while you're at the office, and that way, your boss, who helped pick the curriculum, can help you through it. Oh, and it'll it'll cost nothing to the employee at that point. It'll cost nothing to the employee. The employee will probably have to pay for his first year to get into the qualified. And it could be a year. It could be six months. It could be two months. It could be three courses. Who knows? It's whatever the employer wants. Right? So just that model alone is so superior to anything the college university programs have ever done, ever in the history of the country, of the world, frankly. Why aren't we doing it? Oh, we're going to. This is this type of thing is the first step. I'll tell you who one of the next the next big fish in this pool is going to be is going to be Costco. Costco is one of the most amazing companies to work for really in in the whole country. Because with Costco, you can go in and start out with nothing but a high school diploma, make a decent reasonable salary starting out, usually get part-time hours, prove yourself, get moved into a full-time position, get a bit of a raise. And from that position, if you work hard in that company, you can move up into positions like, I don't know, a wine buyer that travels the world tasting wine for Costco. Because the lady doing that job right now, that's how she started. Now you see Costco thinking about, okay, we've got this better model. We sell, sell to a better uh, quality of customer by charging a little more than our biggest competitor, Sam's Club. We have this cool culture, and we have all these things that we're just touching like automotive sales. Um, what if we started designing educational programs for our employees that created pathways up in the company because we like to promote from within and we're already doing it, but would deliver the education that we actually think that they need? Hmm? And if we partnered with major online universities or even private companies that are, are just building educational programs for these people, we could tailor it to our exact needs. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you're going to go to freaking a regular university 10 years from now? Seriously? Really? For what purpose? Oh, for the, the college experience. Well, I'll tell you what. You want the college experience? 
Go hang out on the beach for a while, play, play around with some of your friends, smoke a little bit of dope, play a little bit of volleyball, get drunk four or five times, and, and find a group of people that you fit in and a group of people that will mock you and get them to both like hang out with you for a while, and then you know go have some pretentious assholes talk to you about subjects that will never matter to you in a way that you don't understand, and then you'll have all of the other part that you're missing. Because all the good stuff we can deliver electronically. There is no reason. There is no reason for a student to sit at a desk anymore. There really isn't. And if there are students together for that collaborative experience that they want beyond online, there's no reason we can't have learning centers where people voluntarily go in study groups and get together locally. There's no reason. There's no reason we can't even have students that are taking different classes, but they're both, let's say, physics collaborating at learning centers, but promoting, pushing their work back through online. Everything I've just said is superior to everything that we're doing right now. Every single bit of it. If there is a place to put children in a seat at a classroom, it's from about kindergarten to fifth grade at the most. At the most. And at that point, if the school system isn't producing a child with enough discipline to take on self-directed learning, the school system is a failure. Not the child. But there's some children, yes, there's some children that grow into Charlie Manson. We cannot build a system around 1% of students. And frankly, we have enough available capital and resources in the public sector that the 1% or 2% that can't function this way could be granted some level of, 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 of public education if necessary, specialized education. And it would cost us a fraction of what we pay now. And, oh, you're supposed to be an anarchist and you don't want anybody's money being taken. I don't, but I'm also a realist and I have to do something with the liver from the, from the accident victim. And I want to put it into this person that could otherwise be healthy if they just had a good liver. So I deal with the reality on the ground. This is just another indicator of what's coming in the education sector, folks. And it's wonderful, unless you're married to the existing system. And you, well, I'm going to save another part of this for later in the show. So next up, I got some good news for you. It's a, it's a small victory for liberty. And it's a small victory for liberty out of freaking Illinois. I mean, if you want a place that just destroys liberty and all belief in such things, go to Illinois. You can, you know, go there or New Jersey. You're probably your two worst examples right now with New York riding a close you know, tie for second to third place there. Um, but in uh, Illinois, we had a, an issue where a little girl had her little business shut down. She was, she was selling cupcakes. She was cooking in her kitchen. And um, you know what? Uh, at least she can do that again now. Illinois girl gets cupcake bill signed into law. Troy, Illinois, it's sweet success for a 12-year-old Illinois girl. Governor Pat Quinn signed the cupcake bill into law. At the home of Chloe Sterling, and she helped get the law passed after health department shut down her home-based cupcake business for not having a business license. The new law applies to home kitchen businesses making less than a thousand dollars a month. It says they can't be shut down unless there is a complaint or a health safety issue. Quote, I'm happy that I'm going to be baking again, and I'm happy that a lot of other home cooks can bake and sell out of homes without getting into trouble like I did, says Chloe. The Illinois government says the new laws opens the door for more small home-based businesses to operate with less governor interference. Hey, dude, I got a great idea, Pat Quinn. Why don't you do a shitload more like that in Illinois? 
And why is it only a thousand bucks? That's a start. But you can't live on twelve thousand dollars a year. Don't you don't you guys believe in this fifteen dollar minimum wage you guys are pushing for? You know, fifteen bucks on a minimum wage is what, uh eight hundred, six hundred dollars. Six hundred dollars a uh a week. Uh and, and by the way, when you want to translate weeks into uh months, uh it's four point three four you multiply by, not four. So that would be twenty six hundred and four dollars. So just this socialist proposed minimum wage number that you would want people to be able to make if they were in business for themselves, paying for all their own crap, by the way, would be twenty six hundred bucks and, and twenty six hundred and four dollars to be exact. So so if, if this works, Governor Quinn, that and I agree, this is a good first step. But if getting government out of the way works, why don't you do more of it? Now, if you really want to, to like Get to the point where you need or you feel the need to punch yourself in the face. Go to this story in the show notes and read some of the comments from people that think this is a bad thing. And I don't mean a bad thing because they're like, well, it's not enough. No, I mean they think it's a bad thing. One lady says, Sonia, I think this will open up a big can of worms. I said, yes, with our, without our mighty state to police cakes, we're all doomed. Jeez, I think America is doomed. Right? That's my response to that. I mean, come on. Uh, and there's a guy here who's an inspector. Um, I am a health inspector, and allowing people to cook out of their homes is a mistake, especially if inspections are not allowed. We actually have to do this uh, to, to an extent in Indiana. You can bake cakes, cookies, etc. out of your home and sell them as long as it is limited to selling at farmer's markets or roadside stands. Once you sell to the general public, such as over the Internet or any location other than a farmer's market, roadside stand, you cannot bake out of your home. Here's a link to our law. Yeah, Jeff, your law sucks. So here's what you're basically saying. It's totally safe for me to cook my food and eat it. In my house. And feed it to my children. It's totally safe for me to cook my food in my home and sell it out of a roadside stand or at a farmer's market. But if I cook my food and sell it to somebody like through the internet or like at a store, it's dangerous. Oh my God. We are, and there's a lot of people in this comment thread that seem to think this is a bad idea to let a little girl cook cupcakes in her kitchen and sell them to her neighbors. See, it's so comforting to try to convince yourself that the problem is the government. And to say the government is not enacting the will of the people, but the more I learn about what the people actually think and want, the more I realize what I've always said is true, more true than I want it to be, that our current government is a reflection of our current society. People do want all this nanny state crap. They do. They want somebody to go check out the cupcake before they eat it. You know what? Kings had this. They were called tasters. Because they were afraid somebody was going to poison them. So the king would have some poor slub. Yeah, take a bite out of that. All right, let's watch him for a while. You, you, come over here. Uh, take a bite out of pie. Well, why can't he do it? Well, I, that's the roast venison and the pie. I want both. And if he dies, I won't know. You eat the freaking piece of pie. All right. All right, you come here. Here, take a drink of my wine. All right. And you guys uh, keep an eye on these guys. I'm going to be back in 30 minutes to eat. And if any of these guys keel over, then uh, let me know. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the same crap. I don't need a health inspector to check out a cupcake. Not from a person making it in their kitchen. 
You know, you guys have a function. It's, it's for all the industrialized food that they're serving us. Where, by the way, I know of things like the maggot count. Yeah, the maggot count. Do you know there's a maggot count in a lot of places? Right? Like places where they jar spaghetti sauce. As long as the total maggot count is low enough, you can still have your, your spaghetti sauce. It's safe because they, you know, you health inspectors that go into these factories where these chickens are eviscerated by mechanical means and their guts are just pulled out of the bottom and freaking E. coli goes everywhere. And the solution is we dump the chicken into a freaking bath of ammonia. Right, and then we, we we scald it on top of that, and then there's still some E. coli in there, but it's low enough that you should be okay as long as you cook it fully. That's okay, but it's dangerous for this little girl to make a freaking cupcake. I'll tell you what, there's probably more danger in that cupcake from the ingredients than from the girl's treatment of the ingredients. How do we get to a point, folks, where we need a law like this? How do we get to a point where a governor actually can grandstand at the expense of a 12-year-old who fought back and won a small victory. Why is it even necessary? Why do you need a business license? You understand, this isn't a cooking license. or This isn't specific to... What started this all out is she didn't have a business license. Because to be in business, you need a license. In this country, we say we license that which is a privilege and protect that which is a right. So now you're telling me my ability to conduct commerce with other individuals who freely choose to do business with me in a free and open market is a privilege, not a right. And in this country, that's actually a correct interpretation of the law in many places. Not everywhere. It's not, that's not like a federal mandate. That's done by states and local authorities that have done this. And you can say whatever you want about certain things needing legislation. That's a blanket approach. That's what started this mess. Was a wasn't oh well she's cooking and that could be bad. It was she doesn't have a business license and then it led to oh well and you got to worry about whether or not there's contamination in food or whatever because if you had a license it'd be okay but if you don't have a license you don't know right like the license is some kind of magical unicorn fart right I mean seriously that's what it is these guys have these unicorns in their heads and all this legislation they're writing they think they're unicorn farts you know what they are they're horse turds. Not unicorn farts. They're dropping horse turds all over the place and thinking they're doing somebody a favor. You think you're helping, but you're not, politicians. I'm glad this guy you know, signed this bill. I'm glad this got done. But make no mistake about it. This is politicians grandstanding on the back of a child. But maybe we need more children to get more things like this done. Because it's pretty hard to get away with trampling on an entrepreneurial 12-year-old, isn't it, politicians? But yet there's still people that think this is okay. Read the comments and resist the temptation to punch yourself in the face when you do. I'll cover this next one pretty quick. By the way, that last one came from Karim, who sends us lots of stuff. first one on the evolution of education came from Martin. Uh, this one comes from Todd. And uh, Todd has for us another thing on college. But it's really not a story about college. It's a story about the economy, and currencies. Um, I said at the beginning of this year that you would see a full-on blitz on Bitcoin to, to demonize it and make it evil. Um, and then a few months into that blitz, I said, corners turning, 
you're going to now see widestream, mainstream acceptance of Bitcoin and an attempt to co-opt it into the system because the, 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 the slander campaign has failed miserably and this type of currency actually just works too well to try to get rid of it. Um, so now <laughs> a college is accepting digital money to pay for tuition. There you go. This is on CNSnews.com. In the age of all things digital, it's no surprise that money is going that direction and higher education is taking advantage. Today, King's College, a private Christian university in New York, has announced its partnership with Coin.co to become the first accredited college in the United States to accept Bitcoin, digital currency for tuition, other expenses, and donations. What exactly is Bitcoin? <laughs> According to its website, Bitcoin uses peer-to-peer -peer technology to operate with no central authority on banks. Managing transactions or issuing Bitcoins is carried out collectively by the network. Essentially, it's a digital currency that operates without a central bank. In regards to the announcement, Dr. Gregory Allen Thornberry, president of the college, stated, quote, The King's College seeks to transform society by preparing students for careers in which they help to shape and eventually lead strategic public and private institutions. Allowing Bitcoin to be used to pay for King's education decreases our costs while simultaneously allowing students to become part of this exciting new technology. King's College is not the first university to make use of this latest technology, but follows the University of Nicosia in Cyprus, University of Columbia in the UK, and Draper University in California. Although King's College is counted as the first U.S. college, according to sources, since it is a private, older, more prestigious institution than Draper, whoever that is. Okay, so... This isn't a huge story, but it does just show the ongoing roll forward for Bitcoin. Bitcoin, by the end of next year, will have no more obstacles to being widely accepted and traded. None. It will take a year and a half from now, and it would just be, it's Bitcoin. And it's going to be seen as equivalent to cash. And people are eventually just going to not even really worry about it. It's just going to be another way to pay. It'll almost be like a credit card that's like a debit card. It's all Bitcoin will become. Bitcoin is a system of accounting. And it derives its value from its network, from its reliability, from its ease of use, from its low transaction costs, and from its convertibility into other forms of currency and or capital. So somebody, see, a lot of people want to say, well, Bitcoin's fiat. Well, Bitcoin's not fiat because nobody gave it value through decree. That's what fiat means. Fiat means a government says, this is now money. Well, nobody did that with Bitcoin. It was put out there and said, if you think it's money, use it. So it had to actually compete in the free market. So th there's that. And then fiat currency derives its value from the issuing authority. That's how it, that's how it's done by fiat. That's, that's what fiat means. I, it, I give this value through fiat. I am your Lord and Master, the government, and I have said that you will use this and that you will render onto me taxes with it. And you will do so, and it is legal tender in my society, and it is good for all debts, public and private. That is by fiat. What is the central authority that did that with Bitcoin? There isn't one. What directive was given that required anybody to ever take Bitcoin at all, ever, under any circumstances? There isn't one. Bitcoin has achieved what it has achieved by doing what it does and people seeing value in it. 
And this is why governments struggled for so long. They, they can't understand it. Maybe they need to go back and read that paper from that guy that we talked about in the history segment, right? But it, I mean, they can't get How does this work? I don't understand. We didn't say it has value and people believe it. What do we do? Oh, I know. Let's slander it. Well, that's, not, that's, that's not working out real well. Um, it seems like every time we say something bad about it, it, it gets, it, it moves forward. Uh, we're, we think we're helping, but we're not, right? Or we, we don't think we're helping, but we are, right? And, and then, okay, well, shit, we might as well just play ball with it. Uh, I don't care what they pay, you know, I don't care what they do their business in as long as they pay their taxes in dollars. That's the new attitude. That's why IRS guidance came out on it, and further guidance will have to be issued because the existing guidance is almost impossible to give the IRS what it wants. So they'll have to come out with additional guidance that simplifies it so that they can get what they want, which is money. Because right now they can't figure it out, so the guidance they've given is so complicated, they wouldn't know whether you've complied or not, so they have to take your word for it. Well, they don't want that. So they're going to have to simplify IRS tax guidance on Bitcoin. And, and what you'll see is Bitcoin being used more as a transmission medium rather than a currency. Meaning that the, the, the guy on the other side of the transaction that's running a company will be doing an instantaneous conversion to cash. So Bitcoin becomes the means of transportation versus the currency itself. But yet, since that's what it is, it will have currency value in all these different side niche markets where people use it direct with each other. And there's... It's really taking cash online. It's making cash electronic. Because they have two ways that it can be handled. I can just give you Bitcoin between two private addresses. There's nothing anybody can do about it. There's really no way to even know what really happened. Or it can be as transparent and public as, as I want it to be through the use of merchant accounts and running a conventional business. So that's cash. That's cash. It's electronic cash. Anyway... Just thought you guys would like to hear that. So we now have a major U.S. Uh, private university accepting Bitcoin. You can now use Bitcoin to uh, to help congressmen get elected if you want to through political contributions. Um, more and more people are taking it. It's taking the exact turn that I said it would. It's almost like I pay attention to what's going on out there. Here's more confirmation that the people in government are working with industry to do exactly what I'm telling you, which is to screw you at your expense for their own good. Um, I've talked a lot in the last year and a half, two years about the changes to 401ks, uh, in moving what used to be money market funds into U.S. government bond funds. Um, that's one change. So you just take, you know, 401k plan, you know, for company A and company A's 401k plan just removes a money fund and replaces it with uh, a bond fund and just, it, the fund just goes away. It's just not there anymore. And, you know, about nine out of ten people who I've talked to in the last couple of years about their 401k no longer have a, a money market or cash fund. There's another way this has been done, too, and it's been by pressure from the government for money markets to actually just change how they hold money, to hold less cash and put more into debt instruments. So you'd think that the money market funds eventually would start having that change as well. And when they change anything in, in the financial world that you're invested in due to their own regulations, they have to tell you about it through complex, confusing language and things that most people don't have time to read. This comes to me from Alan, and Alan says, confirmation for Jack. 
Here's more confirmation the move from a money market fund to government bond fund. You probably all already know this, but just in case, I work for GE. That would be General Electric. Boy, they gave a lot of money to the ass clown president that we have right now, didn't they? Huh? And they don't pay any taxes either. Isn't that nice, right? So I work for GE, and I just got this email. You don't have to read it at all, but here it is for reference. Um, listen to this. Important information regarding certain GE retirement savings investment options, RSPs. Effective July 15, 2014, the GE RSP Money Market Fund will be renamed the GE RSP Government Money Market Fund. Let me, let me read that one to you again. That is slick, isn't it? The GERSP Money Market Fund will be renamed the GERSP Government Money Market Fund. <laughs> I shouldn't, I should just stop. I shouldn't even read anymore. I should just say if you don't understand what that means, then you're not going to get it. Okay? They, they just changed the name of the fund. They didn't throw you out of it. They didn't get rid of it. They just changed the name from the money market fund to the government money market fund. What do you think that means? Okay, here we go. This change is being made to formalize the fund's move from prime money market fund to government money market fund. Didn't we just say that? It also reflects the change in the fund's principal investment strategies from investing uh, substantially all of its assets in short-term U.S. dollar-denominated money market instruments and other debt securities to investing at least in 80% of its new assets under normal circumstances in the short-term U.S. government securities. State Street Global Advisors will become the investment manager for this fund, replacing GE Asset Management. In addition, the State Street Treasury Plus Fund will become a cash sweep vehicle for the GERSP short-term interest fund. The short-term interest fund is committed a, co a commingled fund managed by SSGA. GEAM remains the investment manager. Okay, so we're moving all kinds of shit around, but in the end, here's what's happened. The money that used to be held as cash in this fund is now being held as bond debt, U.S. government debt, okay? And the people running the fund are now actually somebody else, but they're still controlled by GE Capital Asset Management. Yay! What does that mean? That means your cash, if you're in this plan, went from being cash to being a government bond. Because they changed the name from the RSP Money Market Fund to the RSP Government Money Market Fund. They just changed where the money's being held. Now, here's the thing. Somebody's going to write in and go, Jack, money market funds have always held short-term government paper as part of the reserves. Yeah. Yeah, but 80% of its newly acquired money goes straight into... See, if they didn't change anything, they wouldn't have had to send this out. And they would have changed the name to the Government Money Market Fund. They've, they've just changed the, this is billions and billions of dollars that are now funneled into short-term debt, which enable the United States government to continually roll over its debt. This is being done all over the place with all of these retirement accounts. They just funnel the cash into debt. Right, and they do it without any. Most people that get this don't think this matters. Uh, whatever. Hey, what's on TV? And is my spam sandwich ready? 
Right? I mean, I don't have time for this. It's a government money market. RS government money market. Uh, change being made. Formalized funds movement. Oh, it's, it's, these people are going to go here. And uh, General Copity can do. Oh, whatever. I don't care. It's, uh, it's good as cash, right? It's uh, good old government. Yeah, that's great. I ain't worried about it. But uh, it's not a direct problem. It's a symptom of a bigger problem. The only reason they're doing this is because they know they have to to be continuously able to turn over the debt in the coming years because less foreign governments are willing to buy our debt, less individual private citizens are willing to invest in government debt. Interest rates are low on this debt. It pays almost nothing. So why would I put my money in your debt instrument if I'm not going to get much out of it? So to funnel more money in, they have to find these additional avenues to kick in. What people don't realize is they'll say, well, when you look at the totality of, 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 uh, of government debt sold on a daily basis, this isn't that much. It's, when you, if you add it all up, it's five, ten percent. Okay? If you add all of it up, but I mean all the places that this kind of crap's been done in totality. Let's say it's five to ten percent of daily debt turnover. Okay, that doesn't sound like much, but what happens if the government can't get there without it? What if what if you know you heard every other day the government failed to sell to sell five percent of the debt that it needed to sell to stay in operations today, and the Federal Reserve had to print that five percent? We always say they're printing money, but they don't print money so directly. Due to these shortfalls, so you have these all these other ways that they create, you know, capital and, and monetary supply expansion. What we're talking about is direct failure to sell enough debt, where the Fed has to step up and honestly say across the board, we had to monetize this much debt today, then we're going to have to do it tomorrow. And if it's two percent, it's a financial catastrophe. It sends the whole United States into a tailspin. This is life support for a failed system. And it's just another example of it. And thank you, Alan, for bringing it to our attention. Uh, next up for you, what happens when a state stands up for its sovereignty and the rights of its citizens to know what's in its food and the corporatocracy doesn't like it? They sue the state. Small case S. U.S. food makers sue to stop Vermont's GMO labeling law. Several industry groups representing U.S. food makers on Thursday asked a federal judge in Vermont to block the state's new law that will require labels on food products made with genetically modified organisms. The legal challenge was widely expected, and Vermont created a food fight fund in anticipation of the move because it was the first state to pass a GMO labeling law that did not require other states to go first. The fight over GMOs in the United States comes from more than 60 countries around the world already requiring labeling of genetically engineered foods. GMOs have fallen out of favor with many U.S. consumers, but products made with them are still abundant in the aisles of most U.S. supermarkets. How about all U.S. supermarkets? And instead of abundant, they're everywhere. Not just abundant. I mean, almost everything has GMOs in it. That's why they have this fight going on. Connecticut and Maine last year passed GMO labeling legislation similar to that of Vermont, but it's on hold until several other states enact such legislation. In other words, they were cowards and they let the, the Vermont go first so Vermont could chase the, uh, the, uh, the wrath of the uh, lawsuit on their own. Instead of like, if you had, if you had balls, Connecticut and Maine, you guys would like go ahead and pass yours and join in on the defense. But, you know, I guess you're busy, you know, stealing guns from your customers, uh, or stealing, uh, stealing the right to, uh, to keep and bear arms from your, uh, citizens, Connecticut and Maine. I don't know what you guys are doing, feeding donuts to bears or something. Anyway, challengers to the Vermont law set, uh, is set to take place on July 1st, 2016. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Challengers, 
of the Vermont law, which is set to take effect on July 1st, 2016, are the Grocery Manufacturers Association, the Snack Food Association, the International Dairy Foods Association, and the National Association of Manufacturers. Those are all guys that are out to protect you, right, guys? Okay, among other things, they claim Vermont's law is, quote, costly and misguided measure, end quote, that would impose burdensome new speech restrictions on food sellers and set the nation on a path toward a 50-state patchwork of GMO labeling policies that have, quote, no basis in health, safety, or science, end quote. Representatives of Vermont Attorney General William Sorrell and Governor Peter Shumlin did not immediately return calls for comment. BIO, a trade group whose members include Monsanto, Dow AgroSciences, a unit of Dow Chemical Corporation, and other companies that all sell seeds that produce GMO crops have said the cost for an average household would rise by $400 a year due to mandatory labeling. Because it costs a lot of money to add to all that other shit on the label may contain GMOs. Right? It's impossible to do that without cost. Bullshit. Uh, th- what they mean is it'll cost more to label food in Vermont if Vermont's the only one to do it because they, they, they don't want to put it where you'll know about it because you might not buy their garbage if you knew. Uh, Bio and GMA are uh, backing proposed federal laws that would nullify Vermont's labeling law and other, any, any other manuf- mandatory labeling of GMOs in the United States. Some of the most popular U.S. GMO crops are corn, soybeans, and canola which are staple ingredients in virtually every type of packaged food, from soup and tofu to breakfast cereals and chips. Organic foods do not contain GMOs. Not yet. Not yet, but that's their next move, and they need to do this first, because they want to preserve the fakeness of the organic label to you, okay? While proponents and critics visibly disagree over safety, environmental impacts, and effectiveness of genetically engineered crops, consumer backlash against them led to General Mills Incorporated to remove GMOs from its original Cheerios. Restaurant chain Chipotle Mexican Grill has all but removed them from its food supply. All but. Okay, here's the deal. People don't want to buy this crap, and they're not really aware that it's in everything. They don't really know. What they're saying is, if you tell people it's in there, they may not buy our shit, and then it will cost us money. So stop that. Don't let it happen. Um, they want a federal law that bans that bans states from requiring GMO labeling. Oh, if you want to fight, that's a fight to have, don't you think? Really? I mean, you're going to tell the state of Florida, for instance, you can't ask companies that sell food in your state to do this? <laughs> Man. Well, here's the thing. The purest libertarian says, but, but Jay, it's just another government law, and we shouldn't have laws. Listen, I mean, come on. We have a law that says they have to tell you everything that's in the food you eat. So shouldn't if See, that. this is where the whole thing went wrong. If you wanted to say, okay, what we should do is just remove all labeling requirements whatsoever and let companies label things however they want to and let the market decide, fine. But we don't have that. We have all this cumbersome, expensive legislation, and and then they want to say, well, it'll be really expensive if you had that. No, what they really want is they want all the cumbersome legislation that fits their model so they can prevent little kids with cupcakes from competing with them. Yeah. That, that's what it really comes down to. Well, Jack, that little girl might have to say her cupcakes contain GMOs. So? If she knew what she was buying, she could say they didn't. Right? Here's, here's the reason. Here's the real reason for this. 
the GMO experiment is a failure. It does not lead to higher yields. It does not. It does not prevent what we're told it prevents. It has been a failure. Farmers are spending more money than ever before for the same yields on the promise of higher yields. It doesn't work. It's creating super pests. And it's creating super weeds. But it is a good business to be in that makes lots of money by patenting life forms. And it's Monsanto's way to sell chemicals. Monsanto makes seeds so that they can sell chemicals. And in the end, they want to protect it no matter what. And they're afraid that if the consumer knows the truth, the consumer will choose not to buy their garbage. What do I think the solution is here? I think that states should be able to make decisions like this. I mean, again, if you want to remove all law, fine. But we're not going to do that, are we? So the consumer now has a reasonable expectation that if it's in their food, it's on the label. And the objections have always really come down to, but the reason that these companies want to sue is because they're afraid it'll work. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm in favor of, you know, at least states being able to decide to do this. I guess I would put it to you this way. That right now, if you're eating something and there's corn in it, the label says corn. If you don't think the label should have to say that there's GMO in something that has GMO corn in it, then as long as you don't think the label should have to even say corn. Like, if you don't think there should be any labeling at all, I get you. I understand. But if we're going to have a label that has monodextrin, glossmangahamahama, FDC, yellow number 4, 5, and 9, and all the other stuff that's supposedly in there, then GMO is not equivalent. I'm sorry. It's not. It's not the same as just corn. It really isn't. Um, and maybe we should just say, well, then you should just have to put the stuff that's in there that we could test and find in there. doesn't even have anything to do with GMO. Glyphosate. Atrazine. Right? Maybe that should be on the label. It's just an ingredient. I don't know. Um, but I hope Vermont wins this fight because this is why I, I want to see this go through. I believe that it will bring the end to genetically modified crops. Just the knowledge. That it will create such a backlash and such a good market for non-GMO product that farmers will go back to, to, to growing what sells better. What, what the objections to the GMO la labeling law is, if it, if it doesn't come from big food and big chemical, right? Because those guys are just scum, and we all know they're scum. And most people that object to this will acknowledge that Monsanto is a bunch of scumbags. They really will, but they'll still say, we still don't need this. You know, um, but the objection is always, we should just let the free market work. But there's so much regulation in place that the free market cannot work. That the consumer cannot make a choice because the, the, the consumer is clouded from knowing what the actual options are. And that if we had to label anything with the GMO in it, anything without that label would inherently be non-GMO. So we can either get rid of all the crap that's in the way and all the expense and all the burdens and all the things that are done to squash competition, and that ain't going to happen, or we can at least let the free market work by letting people know what the hell they're buying. That's why I support GMO labeling laws and all the purist libertarians that want to tell me why I'm wrong. 
uh, your opinion has been heard uh, and uh, has been considered and has been uh, moved past uh, until you can show me a place where we get to your world tomorrow. I have to work with the world we have today as it is, and this is a good step in the right direction for Vermont uh, to lead the charge. And it's nice to see Vermont, who's, uh, you know, I mean, Vermont is like, Everything they do is like flip a coin. It's like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, what's wrong with you? That's pretty cool. What's wrong with you? I mean, and I think that there's a no better example of that than their senator, Bernie Sanders. I mean, this is a guy that, like, he talks one time, you're like, this guy's an avowed socialist. And a lot of people are like, he's gay. Yeah, that's not my problem with Bernie Sanders. I really don't care about his personal life at all. But, you know, he's an avowed socialist. And you, you, you can say these things, you're like, what is... And they don't come out and, and, and directly oppose the Federal Reserve and do so effectively and get us lots of information that we wouldn't have without them. You know, in some ways, Bernie Sanders became the best ally in the Senate that Ron Paul had. And, and that's, that's Vermont. That's how you guys are. You're like, yeah, what's wrong with you? Good job. What's wrong with you? Well, on this one, good job. Now keep it up. Let's go ahead and... Uh, Move on to the next one that I have for you guys today. This one comes from Jamie, and I almost didn't click the link because it said living off-grid is illegal. And uh, there was an article that went around with that basic headline uh, several months ago, and it was people that were living in, in a, a typical everyday subdivision somewhere in Florida uh, in a normal house in the middle of a subdivision that had basically cut off the power to their house and And, and, and they didn't even really have to use the power. They just had to have a hookup. And it, it, it was one of those things where, yeah, I agree the government shouldn't be doing that, but you're taking a totally wrong approach with yellow journalism to living off grid is illegal. Like, because you know what that makes you think of. It makes you think of what these people I'm about to tell you about are doing. And it is illegal. Listen to this. Huh. This is great. Energy use on the globe is expected to go up by more than 50% in the next 25 years. I don't know that that's true, by the way. Um, might be. Might be with all of the, all of the uh, stuff going. Yeah, you know, it probably is. With China and the rise of their middle class and all. Yeah, probably is. Okay, so 50% in the next 25 years. Michigan law is mandating a heavier reliance on renewable sources by next year. But some say that's not enough. They're taking matters into their own hands. Take Rolf and Mari von Walthusen from, for example. They were a typical Traverse City couple, worked 40-hour-a-week jobs, and lived in average-sized home. But one day they did an experiment. We moved all of our belongings into one room of our house and said, let's see how we can live in that space. It's 12 by 16 feet. Uh, they tried another experiment. This time, one summer uh, at our house, we actually set up a tent in the yard and lived in this tent for four months, living off-grid. Then came the big test. The Von Walthusens, I guess, or Hanshusens, I don't know how to pronounce these guys' names. The Waltz sold their home, quit their day jobs, and built a tiny cabin in the woods with no running water or electricity. They got a new part-time jobs teaching yoga and tuning pianos. They were living in the woods, getting their water from a stream nearby, gathering wood to heat their home uh, with a wood-burning stove, and using their compostable toilet outside. Rolf von Walt said living off-grid is hard work, but he and his wife love it. Quote, this way you get to get to be out in nature 365 days a year and really get into those natural rhythms that we in our modern society have lost, uh, Rolf said. They started getting closer to their neighbors. They trade things like tools for eggs and syrup 
Uh, Marie, uh, Marie said they began spending time with people around them more than they ever could before. Most people in most neighborhoods have no idea who even lives next door because you get home after dark and you just collapse. Life was good until the local zoning and health officials found out. Because, God, we need those guys, right? Uh, turns out there are two major problems with the Von Waltz lifestyle. Clay McNitt with Benzi Lehalu District Health Department says, A habitable dwelling should have running water to it. It should have a means of sanitary disposal of sewage. That's what our code requires. And if it's in the book, damn it, we got to have it. The second problem is that their 200-square-foot house is actually too small to be considered livable in their township. <sighs> Tim Johnson is the chairperson for Centerville Township Planning Commission. He said the Von Waltz house is four times smaller than the township's minimum. The ordinances were first written in 1976. It was first acted primarily, although no one will admit this, to keep single-wide mobile homes out of the township. Okay, you can read the rest of this if you want to. You know what's actually more troubling than this whole article? <sighs> Again, the comments. You know, this one guy here says, Everybody despises the heavy hand of big government codes until a quarter-acre lot across the road becomes occupied by three families. There are 21 children, 42 dogs, and four or five young cars. All of a sudden, hey, where's code enforcement around here? Building codes exist to protect the quality of life and community, and I can't read anymore because he makes me want to punch myself. It gets so much worse. And I love this one from Maxwell. Seems as though this could have been avoided if the Von Waltz would have sought a zoning variance. Perhaps they did. I wouldn't be surprised if they would have contacted the township. And, and then he's like, all these people are saying, like, well, there's what they should have done. And here, why should they have to? Why should they have to? These guys aren't living in a subdivision. They built a cabin in the freaking woods. They built a cabin in the woods. They're bothering no one. They're harming no one. And the government gets in their face. And I'll tell you what the solution would have been. Enough land that you would have had the ability to not let anybody who's not on your land ever see what's on your land. That would be the solution. The hedgerow, 14, 20 feet high, all the way around. A winding road and a fence and a gate and a sign that says access without warrant prohibited to all, including government officials. To schedule access, dial this number. If you're from the government and do not have a warrant, do not bother to call. And I'd even hide that sign right up against the gate so you had to be all the way to the gate to even find that because that just draws attention. That's your last safeguard because you don't belong here without my permission because it's my land damn it who lives here none of your business what's it like here none of your business you don't need to know it's not your business it's my land go away i mean you really can't even take it that far what would have worked would have been just simply not letting anybody see what was going on and keeping your mouth shut but why should you have to Well, what if somebody moves into your neighborhood and they have an old car sitting down? Oh, shut up. Shut up. Really, shut up. What if our country devolves into a society where people's property rights are no longer respected and the property that they own is no longer usable by them in ways which harm no one because everything that they do is confined to their own borders? Oh, wait, we live there! That's where we live now! What if, my ass, what are we going to do about where we are? This couple, and you know what, you know the one little tiny piece of sweet justice in here? I will bet these are liberals, big 
government liberals in this this little little cabin. I think they should have as much freedom as anybody, but I bet they are. I bet you these are the type of people that elect a Barack Obama. I, I really bet they are. And those of you that are new to the show, if you think that is an endorsement of Mitt Romney, you are off your rocker. I, I have no love for either side of the aisle. I have watched every president that's run this country in my lifetime increase the size and scope of government, take us deeper in debt, and erode liberty. And the only thing I can say that's constant is every one of them has done worse than the one before them. So I have, but I'm telling you, these are, the, I bet you, these people think they're saving polar bears here. And the only good part of that, because that's not like, don't think I'm being like, oh, that's what you get. Right, like all the nonsense, paranoia, crap, paranoia. What's the word? Uh, uh, propaganda going around. Like a company owner walked out and then told everybody in his company he had to lay off people because of Obamacare, and all the people with Obama stickers on their car were the ones to get laid off. That never happened. It never happened. It never happened. It never happened. And the myth was started before Obamacare even affected anybody's company. It was nonsense, right? But so there's there's just complete total hubris on both sides of these debates but it's generally the person on the other side of that dichotomy that thinks big government's good see what it is is the people on the conservative side of the debate they're for big government but they don't know they are their marketing has been so slick to them they think well we're for smaller government by electing a good giant member of the corporatocracy like Mitt Romney okay so but the the liberal actually wants big government openly and overtly And I think the good thing about when liberals get stepped on this way is it starts to awaken them to how tyrannical their view really is. Like, it's all okay until it's me, right? Like, I don't understand why they're bothering me. Oh, it's because they bother everybody, dude, right? So the, the, the people on the conservative side of the, of the dichotomy debate, like, they get that government's bad. They just haven't figured out that their side's bad too yet. Okay? But the liberal who's actually for big government is the person we need to really win over. We're, they're the one that we need, like, cause they're the one that are overtly advocating more government. And as they get stepped on by their own creation, they start to realize, hey, this isn't so great. And I, I have found that in the libertarian world, some of the greatest champions for individual liberty end up being the, the reformed liberal. That the conservative usually drags the dichotomy baggage with them, and the liberal usually doesn't. The liberal usually comes to a full onslaught awakening. Holy crap! This sucks! We need to get rid of all of this! And the conservative usually comes, well, we need to get rid of all this, but, you know, it needs to stay illegal to smoke marijuana because we need morals. Wait, well, the state doesn't get to tell you what your morals are. Right? I mean, come on. Anyway... Living off-grid apparently is illegal. Here's something a bit encouraging. This comes from Ted. Ted says, and we're talking about the fact that I talked about Little House on the Prairie and the story that we saw on TV versus the books and you know, the stuff that was based on fact and wasn't recently and how it was a look at frontier America in some ways uh, for the average person, not all the Hollywood theatrics. Um, but Ted says something I didn't really know. He says, did you know that Little House on the Prairie is a libertarian manifesto? Seriously, Laura's daughter, Rose, Rose Wilder Lane, was one of the founders of the Libertarian Party. She edited the manuscripts for her mother and basically ghost wrote them. 
Read the series as an adult. The government and corporations are always shown as greedy, corrupt, and stupid. Goodness is, is being independent versus dependent. When Pa takes out debt to buy a house in Minnesota, very bad things happen to his family. When Almanzo trusts the government to monocrop in South Dakota, very bad things happen to his family. Hard work, trusting yourself and community, and simpler pressures are held up as good. Laura lost all her savings in 1929 due to bad investments and wrote the books afterwards as a response to the strong, quote, Government will fix all our problems, end quote, emotions of the Great Depression. It didn't matter if they were fascist, communist, or FDRs, the plan was really the same. Debt is bad, government at best is stupid and useless, and independence is good. Basically, the survival podcast for kids. Of course, the TV show is very different, Ted. I may have to dust off and read these old books. I really may have to. And boy, that might, for some of you homeschool parents... What a great set of books to have your kids using as part of their independent study and education. Um, very, very interesting. I, I did not know that. I would expect some of those things to come through, but I didn't know it was written with such an angle uh, to such a degree. So thanks for sharing that with us, Ted. And we'll go right back into, are you kidding me? Um, and this is another one of these examples of why do you live in New Jersey, people that live in New Jersey? Well, I can't leave. You know, the Delaware River is not the Berlin Wall. It really isn't. If you live in New Jersey, please leave. Just on this one story alone, especially if you have children in New Jersey. If you have children in New Jersey, you should be leaving New Jersey for the same reason that people took their children and got them out of freaking Soviet Union. Because somebody might come and take them the hell away from you because you don't conform to what your government says you should. Listen to this story. Anybody that defends anybody on the school or government side in this instance, I would not even respond to you because you are a lost cause. I could not help you. I don't. I'm, I would be wasting my energy responding to any defense of this. <sighs> Kid twirls a pencil in class. New Jersey threatens to take him from his dad and require blood and urine testing. In April, Ethan Chapman was twirling a pencil in class when another kid, a bully according to Chapman, called out, He's making gun motions. Send him to juvie. <laughs> the 13-year-old was yanked out of school and thereby commenced his 15 minutes of fame on sites like Huffington Post as well as local cable news stations took up his cause, arguing that suspension for pencil twirling was zero tolerance run amok. Yeah, I guess so. The Vernon Township School District's interim, interim school superintendent claimed Ethan had never been suspended, but conceded that he had been out of school for two days, <laughs> telling New Jer the New Jersey Herald, the story we expelled or suspended the student is partially not true. We did exclude the student from attending until proper psychological evaluation was done, Interim Vernon Superintendent Charles McCanzo said, Maybe somebody needs to tell this idiot, this freaking idiot, that is the superintendent of a school district, the definition of suspended. It's not really true. We just told him he couldn't come to school for a couple days. If a student, quote, demonstrates odd behaviors, non-conforming behaviors, it causes us to take a closer look, end quote, he told the newspaper, quote, if a student gestures or demonstrates a behavior that could be construed as a threat to others in the classroom, then that's also a trigger for us. Folks, find a pencil or a pen and twirl it in your fingers. How many of you did this in school while taking a test? How many times have you ever seen this and thought, oh, that's threatening behavior? 
Ethan was back in class quickly, but too often, but too often these zero tolerance cases have second and third order effects. In Ethan's case, long after they thought the incident was resolved, his dad received some very scary paperwork from the state of New Jersey threatening to revoke his custody rights. Ethan's father, Michael, received a startling communication from New Jersey's Department of Child Protection and Permanency and Department of Children and Families. <sighs> the, the names of these agencies just get longer and longer, don't they? Quote, I received a letter from them saying they had found an incident of abuse or neglect regarding Ethan because I refused to take him for a psychological evaluation, Michael said. Panicked by the letter, Ethan's parents took him for an evaluation where he was required to give blood and urine samples. No troubling psychological conditions were found unless they've recently added being an annoying fidget to the DSM. But now the Chaplin family will likely endure a period of uncertainty and perhaps even home visits from social workers with the power to take away Ethan at any time. Meanwhile, 13-year-olds may be idiots sometimes, but they are not dumb. Remember, the whole incident was triggered by a kid savvy enough to know that raising the specter of even a fake gun is a powerful weapon in the bullying wars. So, here's your bullying, and this is what I tried to explain to you guys about bullying in the past. Bullies don't just push and kick and humiliate. They use authority to their advantage. Um, if you live in New Jersey... Leave New Jersey. New Jersey has topped the list for this type of shit. Just absolutely topped the list. I, I, wasn't it New Jersey where this family had the kid like eating out of a garbage can or something and they got away with that? And even with child welfare visits, but you're going to threaten to take a child away. You know, I'm talking about there was a kid that was like, they, 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 there were two kids and they were like, they looked like they were in Ethiopia in a desert. They were so skinny. And the parents lied and they said something like um, they had an eating disorder and they were trying to feed them or whatever. And when they took the kids away, like within a couple months, the kids were putting all kinds of weight and they're normal again and all. Wasn't that New Jersey? Wasn't that New Jersey Department of, of, of Child Services that, that, that failed on that one? And, and yet they have time to jack around with a kid twirling a pencil? There is no defense of this. And the state of New Jersey, to threaten a father with revoking their custodial rights solely because a child twirled a pencil in school and a report was filed is criminal behavior. And I, I'm telling you, New Jersey does not deserve your, your presence in their state if you are there. There is nothing, there's no reason for you to be in New Jersey right now anymore. I really mean it. I think that it, I would, I would pick New York or Illinois over New Jersey with what I've seen come out of the school system in New Jersey and threats to parents' custodial rights out of New Jersey. There's no place worse in the country. Get out. And, and don't go to Illinois or New York. Go somewhere else. And if you say you can't because of family, if you value your family and you have school-aged children, you will get them out of New Jersey now. This guy, now that this report's been done, this guy should pack his shit up and leave New Jersey. I'm dead serious. This guy should be like out of that state tomorrow morning. Just leave. Take your kids, take your family, pack a U-Haul, get your shit out, and get out of East Berlin before the wall goes up. Because I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. These states that continually drive people away, they're eventually going to enact legislation that tries to force people to stay, that makes it harder to leave. The greatest walls in history have not been made to keep people out. They've been built to keep people in. New Jersey does not deserve the presence of a single of their citizens there, except for the people that want this kind of shit done. All of you people 
stay there. In fact, I'll tell you what. This is what I think should happen. Anybody out there that would defend any aspect of the actions of the school or the Department of Child Safety here, anybody that doesn't live in New Jersey right now, you should go to walkingthefreedom.com and, and, and you should post it in the New Jersey board and, and offer to switch places with anybody in New Jersey. You should go there so that people that, that are not, not idiots like you can leave. We should have an exchange, a moron for sane exchange with New Jersey. It should be set up nationally. I'm being facetious, but only a little bit. I'd actually like to see that. I'd like to see anybody that would, that would defend this. That would say, well, you know, you can't ever be too careful. <laughs> Please go to New Jersey. Please go. Please go now. Stay there. And, and get in touch with somebody that wants out. You know, maybe you guys can just trade houses or something. You know, look for somebody that has your same kind of job. Switch jobs or something. I mean, just, just please go to New Jersey if you believe this is the way to be. Um, and when it sinks into the frickin' river where it belongs, like the cesspool that it became long ago, may you go down with it. That's all I can say about this state. And you know what? I was born there. I think it's the biggest festering sore in the United States, and I was born there. But by God, I sure as hell didn't stay. And with that, I think we're going to wrap up today. I had a couple more stories, but I think we've gone long enough, especially with the interview with Joe. Um, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I hope you understand when you hear me kind of snap out a little bit on things like this. First of all, it's genuine. I really feel this way. You can ask my wife. I snap out like this on occasion when I hear stuff. Uh, I remember, and I'm not the only one, man. My wife just gets to her, too. I remember the other day I heard her in the other side of the house, and she's going, you have to be effing kidding me, really, really loud. And she said the whole word. Um, and I don't remember what the story was, but it was another one of these stories like this. So it is genuine. It's also done a little bit to try to stir you up and get you to understand what's really going on in your country. Um, but it's, it, but the, the reality is it's sad that there's so many opportunities to feel this way. I mean, what nation is this? Sometimes I feel like I woke up and my nation died while I was asleep. Like it's gone. Like we've had problems in this country for a long time, folks, but the, the rapidity with which they're accelerating and compounding on top of each other now is, 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 is mind-numbing. And the vast number of people that actually are okay with it and want more of it is, is truly disturbing. I think the only solution is for us to fight back. And we I don't think we can fight back with a ballot box anymore. I really don't. I don't think electing a new ass clown is going to change anything. You know, in 2016, you're either going to get President Hillary or President GOP. Those are going to be your two choices. It'll be Hillary Clinton against the GOP establishment candidate. And it will be, what will they tell you it is? This is the most important election in history. You know? Um... Boy, that, that makes me think of a, of a picture I posted on Facebook recently. It was a picture of a cow, and it said, Deja Mu. Yeah, Deja Mu. When you know you've heard this bullshit somewhere before, it's called Deja Mu. So we'll have a Deja Mu election, and it's not going to change anything. You know, we have a midterm election this year. Um, the Senate will probably move more toward the Republicans, but not all the way to a Republican majority. Republicans will absolutely keep a solid majority in the House. Uh, the, the current ass clown will remain the ass clown in chief for two more years, and nothing will change. More rhetoric, more banter, more dichotomy. If any, if any advancement toward liberty is to be made, it's to be made at the state and local levels now. 
uh, the, re the repeal of state laws and, and nullification of federal laws through state actions. That's the only hope we have politically. But the real hope is get out of the places where you can't do what you want to do. Go to the places where you can do what you want to do and do it really good. I mean, that's, that is the way that a republic really works. You see, the republic was designed with freedom of movement. It was designed so the person in Florida could move to California and the person in California could move to Florida with no impediments and nothing in the way. And that each state would have a, a significant amount of its own authority within the republic so that if one state did something stupid, it would actually cause people to leave it and go to the state that wasn't stupid. And that's happening, but it's not happening enough and it's not happening rapidly enough. If you're a talented entrepreneur in New Jersey, you really need to leave. I mean, there is no... There is no good that can come from you building a good business in New Jersey. It, it, it doesn't help. It doesn't help. It helps for you to go build that business in Georgia. You know, that's, that's what helps. Or Wyoming or South Dakota. To go somewhere where, where people actually want you to succeed and don't want government to stop you. And there's still too much government in Georgia and South Dakota, Texas, Florida. But there's a hell of a lot less of it. And that's what we need to do. We need to make strong strategic decisions about our lives. And I'm telling you, some of you guys that say, well, it's easier said than done. No. No. It's really not. It's not as hard as you think. It can be done if it's what you really want. If you actually believe in it enough to make it happen. And I think that's what we need to do. And sometimes it's not moving across state lines. Sometimes it's moving out of a county or a city or a township. Just far enough to get away from the things that are impeding your progress and then do what you want to do and do it really well. That's how you restore the republic to the rightful place of a republic. A republic is supposed to be, though seldom is, a place where the average individual is seen as equal to every individual. You understand that? The average individual is seen as equal to every individual. That's what a republic is really supposed to be about. That we all have equality of opportunity. And that the purpose of government in a, in a well-run republic is only to protect one person from the other person violating their rights. It is not to provide opportunity. It is not to create jobs. It is to prevent others from obstructing those things. And the way you restore that republic is you go out and prove that that works by building businesses, by being successful, by being good parents, by educating your children, by working with others in your community. And when you're in a place where those things are completely and totally prohibited in any meaningful way, it's time to go somewhere else. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better.